Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume Two Ten, for June twelfth, two thousand eight. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and I kind of promised it, and I delivered. We have got a fantastic episode. I'm really going to say this is the best episode ever. Uh, we got nothing but Tony nominees, but that's not just it. All the interviews are just fantastic, entertaining. You're going to learn a lot about a lot of different things and have a lot of fun while doing it. So uh, we have got the orchestrators from In the Heights, our first orchestrators ever. Uh, we have got Rondi Reed, nominated for Best Featured Actress in a Play from August Osage County. We have got Daniel Breaker, up for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Passing Strange. And we've got Michael Yergin, already a Tony winner uh, for the set design for uh, Light in the Piazza, who is nominated this year for set design for South Pacific. We're going to hear music as well from uh, In the Heights and uh, Passing Strange. So it's just a fantastic episode. Plus, uh, in on the positive side, Marty and I kind of give our Tony predictions for the thing. So uh, you can see if... Uh, what we say has any weight. I also wanted to thank everybody for getting some reviews on our iTunes board. It really does help. It really moved us up the featured list in the arts section, and it also placed us in the top 100 uh, podcasts and arts again for the first time in quite a while. So if you haven't reviewed us yet, please uh, take another moment, give a five-star review, keep them coming. It really helps. It's a simple thing you can do to help other people find uh, Broadway Bullet, because quite frankly, a lot of people search there to Find out what's going on. But with all this in this jam-packed episode, I, I don't have a lot of time to waste. So let's jump right in. Up close. I am excited. In the almost two years we've been doing Broadway Bullet, I have yet to have any Broadway orchestrators on. In fact, any orchestrators at all. So uh, I'm delighted that the first pair that is on the show, Bill Sherman and Alex Lacamoire. Yeah. <laughs> are uh, not only orchestrators, but just got the Tony nomination for Woo! orchestrating in We're the hot heights. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> How you guys doing? We're wonderful. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so, out of the way, really quick. What was your guys' reaction when you got the no nomination? And in the heights, got thirteen nominations total. It was pretty crazy. Uh, we were actually in Times Square at the time that the nominations got announced. We were filming Good Morning America, and right about eight thirty, when we were about to go on, they made the announcements, and we got this sheet of paper that said all the people that had been nominated and you know Bill had come up to me and he said hey congratulations and at the time I thought he was congratulating me on the performance that we were about to do but he meant no congratulations we <laughs> a little slow that morning it was early it was early <laughs> it was very early but it was thrilling man we were psyched and you know I called my mom and she was like ah I'm so totally in Spanish <laughs> in Spanish it was great <laughs> and this has been a long time coming Bill how many shows have you had to wait to get your nomination <laughs> 
none. <laughs> I only do things for the first time, and I nail them out of the park, and then I just move on. So I'm going to get my Grammy next year and my Emmy of the year after that. But I, wait, hold on, because I've been thinking about this a lot, because people have been asking me a lot, what is it like, how do you feel when you get nominated for a Tony? So I was walking, I was like, I don't know, like, pants shitting would be pretty close to how I feel every time. It was like totally, it's totally bizarre and surreal. And we were like in the middle, of, like you said, in the middle of freaking Times Square, which was like, couldn't be a more surreal environment to learn that you're nominated for a, for an award. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah, it's, it's it's just really great to be recognized because we've been working on the show for so long and really putting our hearts into it. And to get this kind of recognition, it's, it's about the, the best you can get. You know? Totally. <laughs> so the world of orchestrations and array, arranging, now I have to say, I, I think, I imagine I have to not be alone in this. I think this is an area where a lot of people picture, I, I kind of expected still a 50 or 60-year-old <laughs> you know, to come walking <laughs> in the door. I think it still kind of pictures one of the more old guard, kind of stodgier areas. And you guys are very young. Um, and, and and fresh at this, you know, so th- that's also exciting. But cool. one of the big things, I guess, out of the box, the big question, you know, and I noticed, uh, Alex, you arranged for Wicked. Yes. Right, which uh, there should be a p- couple people that just screamed at home. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, Wicked! <laughs> <laughs> I love the fire Sorry. Yeah. We're on the subway. People now are listening <laughs> yeah. and going, Absolutely. what's going on? Um, what is the big difference between arranging and orchestrating? Because it was just now that I really noticed that it's very kind of clearly delineated in most credits. Absolutely. And, uh, shows. Well, uh, it's funny. It, it wasn't until I got to New York that I realized that people make a big distinction between arranging and orchestrating. And I think the best way to break it down is that, you know, if a composer writes a song, um, what an arranger will do is that he will most likely sit down at the piano and make suggestions about, you know what, let's put this in this key. And you know what, maybe the feel should be like this. Maybe the drums should come in here. Maybe the horn should come in here. And what if the ending did like this? You know, it's, it's just very kind of structural, big picture kind of thing. An orchestrator, on the other hand, will be more specific and write down lines for every single instrument in the orchestra. He will write down what the first trumpet player plays. He will write down what the first oboe player plays. He will write down what those actual horn lines will play and make the chord. So it's just basically the more detailed version of what an arranger does. But I think specifically in relation to In the Heights, it was like a very specific thing. Lynn, who, who wrote In the Heights, would give us GarageBand files from, from his Mac. He would sing into them and sort of give a generic, generic, that's not the right word, a general idea of what he wanted to hear. And then we would just all sort of sit around. And what's incredible about In the Heights, and you know, talk about us being young, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but we all sort of speak the same musical vocabulary. And if we didn't, we sort of went out of our way to do so. Like Turn it up to 11, dude. Totally. <laughs> but like, like I, I, you know, I went to college. Does this thing make beats? <laughs> <laughs> Press the stalk button. <laughs> no. Uh, I yeah. used to work at Manny's, and that was the number one question. I was oh, like, yo, does this thing make beats? <laughs> <laughs> like the MPC things? Yeah. We, we would just, and so we would like listen to reggaeton. And I listened to a lot of salsa music. You know, mm-hmm. Lynn had a big collection of merengue and stuff. And so we just listened to it and then and then okay and so then we arranged them and then you know we figured out how to make it sound like like a, like the song it was supposed to be but also uh sound like the music it was supposed to be emulating. Yeah. I mean, we did a lot of listening, a lot of like yeah. research. And we you know? argue over every note. Yeah, which is really cool because then like we always come up with something that makes both of us happy and I think it's really important. You know, it's rare. <laughs> and there's a lot of notes. There are a lot show. of notes. Too many notes. <laughs> Salsa Latin, very fast moving. I know. That's true. The whole yeah, book's in cut time. Yeah. But at the same time though, and this is what I love about what we do, you know, I think that even though there is a lot of notes, we're also very particular about what we want to have happening at a specific moment. It's like we will never have all instruments playing all at the same time unless it's a 
a big moment. Like, we're very, like, you know, uh, organized in that respect. You know what? It's time to hear the horns right now, so let's have the keyboard player lay out. Or it's time to hear the, the keyboard. Let's the guitar lay out. So we're also very, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very thoughtful in the process. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> so before we continue, maybe now might be a good time to play one of the songs from the just-released cast album. Yes! In the Heights. Uh, do you want to tell us? June 3rd. Is today June 3rd? Today's June 3rd, dog. Yeah! Believe oh, it! This will be airing next week, but... Whatever! We... <laughs> June 10th! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you want to tell us anything about this first song that we're playing? Kind yeah. of maybe orchestration-wise? Sure, what? sure. Well, this song is called Paciencia y Fe. That's and... Spanish for patience. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Okay. Okay, I love it. Okay. Uh, so this is about like the sauciest salsa, salsa that ever salsa in the to- in the show. I is think. it a mambo or is it a salsa? It's kind of a mambo, and it's it a, goes into some song a little a bit. It's a mamsola. Yeah, sure. Salsa bow. Right, right. But uh, in terms of orchestration, oh, what I love about this is that this is really cool. Our guitar player for our band, which is amazing, by the way, our, our band, band is, rules. Our band is like the best band on Broadway. I, I love Period. this. Period. And we should talk about them later because they rule. Yeah, um, Manny Marrera actually learned how to play a specific Cuban instrument for this song. It's, it's uh, an instrument called a tres, which is a guitar that's you know from Cuba, and it's got uh, uh, three groups of two in- two strings. Yeah. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. It looks like a play school instrument. Yeah, it sounds awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you hear that instrument uh, featured prominently because I went to Cuba for the first time a couple years ago, and everywhere I went, there was like a tres everywhere. And I'm like, Bill, we got to put tres in the show. <laughs> what else is cool about this song is when Lynn wrote the song originally, it was like <laughs> it was like 20 minutes long. <laughs> it was like this opus of like this woman's entire life about coming to America and growing up in Cuba and this whole thing. And and the, I thought for me the most fascinating process was condensing that 20 minute long tune into, into what you here now and the song is sort of like it's like it's like a woman's whole life in a song and which is a pretty impressive thing to be able to do and to sort of it takes you places geographically and 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 you, you sort of go there and it's just pretty uh incredible that a song i think that a song can do that and musically we sort of tried to if we went to a particular place we sort of tried to emulate that place yeah. there's a line about uh, New York and jazz and so we put in this Charlie <laughs> Parker sort of thing <laughs> happening and then when she's in Cuba it's more of this like spacey Cuban music so yeah, yeah. there All you right. go Let's take a listen. Jaife. hit it hit it calor 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 ay Mama, the summer's hottest day. Paciencia y fe, paciencia y fe. Ay, carajo, it's hot, but that's okay. Mama would say, paciencia y fe. It's hotter at home in La Vibora. The Washington Heights of Havana A crowded city of faces the same as mine Back as a child in La Vibora I chased the birds in the plaza Praying, Mama, you would find work Combing the stars in the sky for some sort of sign Ay, Mama, so many stars in Cuba in Nueva York, we can't see beyond our street lights. To reach the roof, you gotta bribe the super. Ain't no Cassiopeia in Washington Heights, but ain't no food in La Vibora. 
I remember nights, anger in the streets, hunger at the windows. Women folding clothes, playing with my friends in the summer rain. Mama needs a job, Mama says we're poor. One day you say, Vamos a Nueva York. And Nueva York was far, but Nueva York had work. And so we came. And now I'm wide awake, a million years too late. I talk to you, imagining what you do, remembering what we went through. America in Espanol I remember dancing with Mayor La Guardia all of society welcoming mommy and me Sharing double beds, trying to catch a break, struggling with English. Listening to friends, finally got a job working as a maid. So we cleaned some homes, polishing with pride, scrubbing the whole of the Upper East Side. The days into weeks, the weeks into years, and here I stay. I buy my loaf of bread, continue with my day, and see you in my head, imagining what you'd say. The birds, they fly away, do they fly to la mimora? I... All right, Mama. Okay. Paciencia y fe. I'll be going to this mic thing a lot. So yeah, just, I love just, it. Just let that I love be known. Just do your thing. Bill Sherman during the song has been uh, lip syncing on my <laughs> lamp as a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't need to say that. But okay. <laughs> That's exactly what I've been doing. And particularly, uh, I'm a really good lip singer. We play a lot of rock band, Alex and I. <laughs> and lately, have been playing a lot of uh, Guitar Hero. Oh, my God. We've actually been to two parties now. At one, we were playing rock band. So it was at Alex's house that the, the cops came. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. Dude, and we were destroying Cult of Personality. Cult of Personality. <laughs> that's what it was. That's what was great. Oh, that's awesome. And then recently we were playing again, but the 80s version. Oh, yeah. And the 80s version is 
not as good as the regular one. No. The last almost, thing I expected was the Broadway orchestrators to come in and go, yeah, guitar <laughs> band. <laughs> That's where it's at. That game is the jam, and if you don't own it, buy it, because it rocks. <laughs> All right, sorry, next. Okay. <laughs> one question, and... and you need to, with, this is a sensitive question because I don't mean to slam Lin Manuel is great at no all, problem. and um, but I have heard from a lot of people that <clears throat> I, I mean I, I guess I, it'll sound rude, and I don't mean it to sound rude because everybody's their distinct paths. Go for it. A lot of times, the orchestrators make all the difference in the world and how good something sounds. Um, how much has that been your experience in the past? How you know, um, let's say the past versus now, uh, Alex, just to to not. Get into like toe stepping on this project, sure, but sure. Uh, in general, I know that you know. I know I've talked with you know a lot of people who, you know, sometimes you know the through the buzz. Sometimes the word is that the orchestrators are almost more important sometimes than. Well, I, <laughs> at I, least in film, this is. I guess I hear this a lot in film, and I'm wondering how much sure. the transition is the same in. You know, it really it depends on who the composer is, man. I, I would say them. You know, some composers give like a very uh, a very broad stroke let's say, and they won't have like a lot of counter lines and things written in there. So a lot of times the orchestrators will take it upon themselves to write out counter lines and really flesh out the piece and really give it a, a new structure. Um, other composers are really specific and they say, you know, this is what the counter line is and I want the strings to be doing this and I want the horns to be doing that. And, you know, sometimes for an orchestrator that makes the job easier. Other times it makes them more constricted and they're not allowed to maybe uh, be as experimental or what have you. But I, I just really think it varies from, from person to person. I also think that as hard as it is for the composer to write out every line, it's as hard to find people you trust to mess with your music. Mm-hmm. And I think with Lynn, he, which is so, so rare and the, the, the collaboration between the two of us and him is sort of like Look, here's what I think the song should sound like. I trust you guys. Go do what you do. Mm-hmm. And very rarely, and this is sort of why this works, why this collaboration amongst people worked, why In the Heights works, one of the reasons, one of the many, was we would come back to him and he would just, he, like one out of a, what, a hundred times, he would say, oh, I don't think that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And But but that happened once. <laughs> yeah. I think it was once. And so it was just like, it was totally implicit trust. And like I said in the beginning, it was like, it was like we all knew the vocabulary. So if he would say, and he, we would always speak in general terms, mm-hmm. it never got specific. It would always be like, oh, I think that needs to be more of like a bachata thing there. And we would be like, okay. Yeah. And then we would go and sort of make it that. And so that, and that's that's really how it worked. And so, it, you know, uh, specific or not, it was it's a total... Collabo. Yeah. Can we I call mean, it that? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've never seen a composer, like, trust someone else, I guess, the way Lynn trusts yeah. us. I mean, it's just really cool that he really, you know, uh, lets us do our thing. You know, he lets us really kind of write with our voice. And that's why I'm really, really so proud of the stuff that we've done, man. I mean, this is this is me and Bill. I mean, this music. I mean, Lynn wrote the songs. I mean, he, the, you know, we would not be here without Lynn. But, man, it's like, you know, every piano part that's in there, you know, I wrote it down. Every hip-hop beat that's there, Bill produced it. And every horn line that's there, Bill and I, like, talked about and poured over for days and days. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a, you know, what you hear is basically... Very us. Yeah, it's what came out of our heads and our fingers and, you know, our... Computers. <laughs> totally. Everything. Where, where do the beats come from? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, does this make beats? <laughs> Bill, I understand you wanted this job so bad that you stalked Lin-Manuel to the point of moving in with him. <laughs> <laughs> I love how things get phased. In the, uh, actually, this is the, the truth new is, urban legend, The right? truth is that he stalked me. <laughs> you want to hear the story? <laughs> okay, the story before. Uh, okay, this is awesome. Okay, so Lin and I were at Wesley University where we both went to college, and his girlfriend at the time was producing Once on this Island, and through a very weird 
weird, you know, the sleeping around with people. I got the job as music director. Not because I slept with anyone, because someone else got fired for sleeping with something like the director's girlfriend, whatever. So I was the music director of Once Island. Island. I had no idea what I was doing. I, yeah, I was just didn't. like, no, I did, really didn't. Okay. No, no, because, because I know this years later because I was thinking like, oh... I don't know how to conduct in three. And there's a song in <laughs> you three. You think I do? Well, no, you do. You know exactly what you're doing. Anyway, so, 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 okay, so, so the short story is uh, Lynn, because his girlfriend was producing, came to see the show, and he came up to me afterwards, and he literally said, and I've said this a hundred times, and it's true, he said, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but we're going to work together for a really long time. He literally said, I'm getting chills. He literally <laughs> said that to me that day. I know that's, like, really horrible, but but he did. And so, and so we worked on his, uh, this other thing we did, this, like, 90s, uh, all these tunes from the 90s and it was about a school shooting so there was like Nirvana and Soundgarden it was like this musical of our day and then his senior thesis which was like sort of a smorgasbord of all kinds of shit and a smorgasbord <laughs> I totally always wanted to say that and then and then and then, and then we graduated and then we lived together and, and I tell a story too like we, we basically lived in what I call like the In the Heights fraternity. We would like skateboard up and down the hall. We like never cleaned. We had this other roommate and she somehow put up with us because she was a good friend of ours and <clears throat> We would eat, like, pizza bagels and, like, talk about merengue. Like, that was our life for years. And we would wake each other up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, my God, I think there's this. Da, 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 da. And he'd be like, okay, whatever. And then I'd be like, we should probably go back. To, and it was a total mess, but it worked. And then we would, like, do readings and stuff of In the Heights. And then Alex came along and there was some structure finally. And then uh, and we moved out of the fraternity, like, two, three years ago, two years ago. <laughs> now, that, in the in the development, so you've been involved with this more or less since pretty early on, yeah. Bill? Yeah, yeah. How, in terms of pitching the song and even getting to the point where, you know, early on and readings and stuff, how how done up were the demos? Because, I mean, I'm thinking that this, because this isn't, you know, traditional Broadway strings yeah. that you had to kind of convince some people what this was going to sound like before, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, how did this show, you know, even in the orchestration phase, demo-wise, kind of... Dude, come together. It started pretty it bad. It started pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, no joke. By pretty bad, I mean like this. Bad. <laughs> well, not bad. It, was, it started pretty bare. I mean, no joke. I mean, when I first started working on this project, like, the way I would learn songs that Lynn would type out lyric sheets and write chords above the lyrics. Yeah. Like, that was the piano part. <laughs> so, literally, for like the first year before Lynn discovered how to use GarageBand, like, the only thing that really existed was just like, you know, very, very rudimentary chords from Lynn. And, uh, you know, there were no... And whatever was in our heads, really. Yeah, just. basically. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, around the summer of 05, Lynn discovered GarageBand. And he's like, oh, my God, I can record, like, my vocal on top of my other vocals. A brilliant discovery. Yeah. And then he, oh, my God, I can put drum grooves on top of this. I can actually, you know, record myself playing piano at a slower pace and then speeding up because I can't play fast enough. So, uh, it, it, basically, it started very bare, but it started to get more and more complex. And But um, I actually have very early demos of, of tapes, cassette tapes, of Lynn singing. In, he has a Casio. <laughs> He'll hate me for is a Casio that he that he used to be able to program Casio beats into, yeah. and he would play that and then record himself on like a four track. And I have some of those, and they're pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> so how did this pretty awful demos get the attention and start getting the momentum to move forward? We had all these readings in the early days, and we you know I I managed to get it to some point where it's it, where before before Alice came along, I'd really. Hmm. I really didn't know what I was doing, and I was just trying to keep my head above the water and to figure out to sort of 
take Lynn's ideas and make them as concise as possible so that other people could read them. And we had bands in the early days, and like you know, when you're trying to get people to pay attention to your stuff, you go for, you go for the most drastic thing you can. So no matter what, like we had a percussionist because it was like we had to have that percussive feeling of like what In the Heights was and what Latin music was. So even if the piano was playing something totally unrelated, as long as the conga was like, then it was like, oh my god, it's a Latin song. So like you know, the white folks they totally down with that. So yeah, I don't know. We just tried to. Tried to get the songs to to a place where we could get the idea across. And you know, our director, who's a genius, he was always saying, "Look, no matter what it is, it's always about telling a story. You got to tell yeah. a freaking story." So in the early days, it was like, "This is a pretty interesting story. Yeah. This guy raps. No one else does that in musical theater history. Period. Yeah. So what the hell? I mean, we're automatically onto something new anyway. I mean, so, no matter what the demo sounded like, at the end of the day, it was still a song that Lynn had written, and yeah. it was still his melody, and it was still his badass rapping on top of it. So you know, arrangement aside, like that's really what shines through at the end. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, before we kind of continue, uh, let's play one more song from the awesome. cast album. You want to talk anything about this one? Ninety six hundred. Ninety six thousand. Ninety six thousand. God. Ninety six thousand is like our like our our hip hop jam. It's like uh, we <laughs> we had long talks about you know hip hop music is sometimes it's it's so monotonous and it's hard and when you're trying to let Broadway audiences or just generally audiences in into your thing, you have to be very like pragmatic about what you're doing. So, you know, we talked forever about what the groove was and if it was, like, two eight-mile Eminem and then, like, what if that happens here, da-da-da-da. Anyway, with this, it's just, it's like, the scorching production number in the show. It's just, like, sort of, we have, like, the club number, which is, like, the Latin craziness, like, Copa, and we have this, which is, like, any hip-hop club, I guess. And I think this tune is probably the one that we had the biggest arguments over. I remember this was the hardest one to come to an agreement on what the groove should be, because when we had it off-Broadway, the chords were really kind of, like, jazzmatazzy. It was a little jazzmatazzy. And it has this, like, little counter line that Lynn had written when he was, like, a kid that we got ended up, you know, that one of us doesn't like as much as the other. I don't know which one that would be. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I do remember that it took a very long time for us to agree on what the central groove of the song was going to be, but... found it. But we found it, and I think we kicked it in the nuts, squarely. Totally. Square in the nuts. <laughs> so play it. So play it. All right. 96,000. Damn. 96,000. Dollars? Holla. 96,000. Yo, somebody won. 96,000. Yo, if I won the lotto tomorrow, well, I know I wouldn't bother going on no spending spree. I'll pick a business school and pay the entrance fee. Then maybe, if you're lucky, you'll stay friends with me. I'll be a businessman richer than Nina's daddy. Donald Trump and I on the links, and he's my caddy. My money's making money. I'm going from poor. Moto, keep the bling. I want the brass ring like Brodo. Here goes Mr. Braggadocio. Next thing you know, you're lying like Pinocchio. If you're scared of the bull, stay out the rodeo. I got more hoes than a phone book in Tokyo. Ooh, you better stop rapping. You're not ready. It's gonna get hot and heavy, and you already sweat. Yo, 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 yo. I'm sorry, is that an answer? Shut up, go home, and pull your damn pants up. As for you, Mr. Frodo of the Shire, 96. G's ain't enough to retire Come on, not have enough to knock your ass off his axis You have a knapsack full of jack after taxes 96,000 Ay, a la bolsa 96,000 Nobody 96,000 I never win shit 96,000 real though Imagine how we feel going real slow Down the highway of life with no regrets And no breaking your neck for respect or a paycheck Real though, I take a break from the wheel and we'll throw the biggest block party. Everybody here, it's a weekend where we can breathe, take it easy. 
just bleach. Y'all are freaks. Yo, I'm just saying. It's silly when we get into these crazy hypotheticals You really want some bread? Then go ahead, create a set of goals And cross them off the list as you pursue them And with those 96, I know precisely what I'm doing What you doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? It takes most of that cash just to save my ass from financial ruin Sonny can keep the coffee brewing I'll spend a few on you Cause the only room with the view is a room with you in it And I could give Abuela Claudia The rest of it to slime me down to Puerto Plata I'll make the best of it You really love this business? No Merry Christmas, you're now the youngest tycoon in Washington Yo, we're 96,000, I finally fix housing Give the body all computers with wireless web browsing Your kids are living without a good education Change the station, teach them about gentrification The rate is escalating, what? the rich are penetrating what? We pay our corporations when we should be demonstrating What, what about immigration, politicians be hating Racism in this nation gone from latent to blatant I'll catch my ticket and pick it, invest in protests Never lose my focus till the city takes notice And you know this man? I'm never sleep because the ghetto has a million promises for me to keep. You are so cute. I was just thinking off the top of my head. 96K, go. If I win the lottery, you'll never see me again. Damn, we only joking. Stay broke then. Clean that lamp off after. <laughs> <laughs> totally making out with your lamp. This is where the beads come from. I love this lamp. I don't know why. It just feels like a microphone. Hello. So, Alex, on a on a different topic, I th- one thing that strikes me as very interesting, though I haven't gotten into any detail yet about you, mm-hmm. is that I, I just found out that uh, you're actually hearing impaired. Yes, I am. How does that work as an 
orchestrator. You know, it's not that bad. I mean, when I tell well, people... Beethoven what, was deaf, so... Yeah, he, like full on. <laughs> but I'm definitely not at the Beethoven level of deafness. I mean, I wear hearing aids. Uh, I'm not wearing them right now because I'm wearing headphones. So, you know, but uh, basically, it's like I hear what you hear just at a softer volume. That's the way I describe it. It's like, you know, if we're listening to the stereo, I'm hearing the stereo the same way you do. I just like need to turn it up louder than you do to hear it at your level. So really, like for me, my hearing impairment mostly affects speech. And like, you know, if someone's like standing on the other side of the room and I'm not wearing my hearing aids and they're talking softly, I'm not going to be able to hear them. But at the end of the day, I mean, I can still hear the piano. I can still hear what's going on. So it's just basically like, you know, a, a slight loss. I miss a lot of high frequencies. For the record, <laughs> Alex being hearing impaired, quote unquote, Alex hears everything. <laughs> Every note that you play, if you, 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 our band will attest that hearing impaired or not, he hears every note they play wrong, everything that they do incorrectly, every note that, that the cast sings right or wrong, he, he hears everything. So it's not, I don't think it's really an impairment at all. It's just like, it's it's nothing. It's, uh, it's and what, one time, one time he said I can't hear the high frequency. Like he couldn't hear this hi hat thing. But I was sitting right there. I was like, well, it's a hi hat thing. And you were like, well, okay. And then yeah. that was sort of it. That's what it was. We were in the studio and yeah. we were mixing the record. And there's like this triangle bit. I'm like, dude, I don't hear, hear a triangle. <laughs> I literally did not hear it. And like everyone else in the room, like, dude, that shit is so loud. If you turn it up any louder, it would be a fucking triangle. It's the so triangle loud. was really loud. <laughs> so when that happens, I just literally just pull my like the Christopher yeah. Walken more cowbell. Yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah. it was that moment. Yeah. You had a fever for more triangles. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> why? Because I couldn't hear it. Because you couldn't hear it. <laughs> but, yeah, it's not an impairment, I don't think. Well, well think. when you mention that it's mostly speech and that you do hear all the music, do you think that maybe had any any shaping in towards your getting into music at all? I don't think so, man. Or, I mean, because I've been playing piano since I was four years old, which is probably around the same time that I figured out that I was hearing impaired. So it all just happened in tandem. And I don't know, man. Music's just been my language since I was a kid, and it's what I understand. And reading sheet music is like reading words to me. I think I read sheet music faster than words <laughs> sometimes. But uh, it's We've just... been doing crossword puzzles a lot lately. To Dude, Bill's got me into crosswords, crosswords lately. Dude, I'm so into crosswords. Thanks, Bill Sherman. You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> tangent. We do like, yeah, total tangent. We do like crossword puzzles. It keeps us, our brains together. <laughs> so... Alex, wh- how did you break in through all this? In you know, you, you've had a few credits. You did Wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you also did High, F- High Fidelity last yes, year. Yes, I did. I did. Uh, well, basically, uh, I started as a pianist. Uh, when I first got to New York, I was playing audition piano for Binder Casting and for Bernie Telsey Casting, and I subbed at the Lion King. Nah, to go. Uh, I played their rehearsals, I played their show, I played their auditions, and then uh, by playing other auditions, I met Steven Schwartz. And then uh, I, I, well, basically what happened was uh, we were uh, I was playing auditions for a revival of working that was going to happen in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And I didn't know that Schwartz was going to be there. And mind you, Schwartz had been like my childhood idol. I'm, I'm not joking. I was 13 years old. Really? Dude, you don't know I didn't know, this? know that. Dude, I was 13 years old in my bedroom playing Pippin on my piano. Well, that doesn't surprise me. All by myself. <laughs> just like, you know, we got magic to do. Yes, I would share the picture of Schwartz in the back. I'm like, dude, this 24-year-old guy like wrote Pippin and yeah. Godspell like he was totally my hero so okay. and I was like oh man wouldn't it be great to work with him one day this is like me in Miami like you know circa 88 anyway fast forward 19- they're like best friends now <laughs> so meanwhile like 1999 I'm playing audition Schwartz walked into the room I didn't even know he was going to be there so I'm like shit my totally that's what happened so like after like the third auditioner Schwartz was like Alex I like your plan you want to give me your card I'm like here's my card Mr. Schwartz and then after the fifth auditioner they were like okay so basically we want you to play our show can you come to New Haven in January and that was it. So I became Schwartz's bitch. Yeah. Yes, you did. I did, man. Well, Schwartz introduced me to his son, Scott, and then I did Batboy with Scott, and then Steven Schwartz basically got me on board to do Wicked. And uh, at the time, I was just hired to be the pianist for Wicked, but then, you know, as we've gotten to rehearsals, um, 
you know, they needed music for transitions and they needed music for sound effects and they needed music for, uh, you know, these little uh, You write a mean underscore. sound effect. Yeah, sound effect. Uh, well, by sound effect. <laughs> anyway, so um, I just started to do it. Like, I just kind of volunteered it. And it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get credit. I'm going to get paid or whatever. I'm like, you know what? I, I just, someone needs to write this. I'm going to do it. So then, you know, Schwartz was into what I was doing and he literally got to a point where, like, he needed music to cover, like, a, a wheelchair uh, special effect. And he literally, like, just said, Alex, just go do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just wrote it, and then uh, he vouched to get me credit, and uh, I get a little, you know, little mention in the show, and and um, it just uh, branched from there, you know. And Stephen Remus and I together did like the or- some of the orchestrations for the show, and uh, it, it was it's really cool. It was great. All right, so uh, if you guys win the Tonys, oh. what are you going to do to shock America on national television? <laughs> <laughs> we were well, talking about this yesterday. Well, the bad news is they're not even going to air our shit. Dude. That's right. They don't oh, they don't do extra. No. no, we're going to be this guy. And in ceremonies held before the show, the best orchestrations went to Alex Agamore. If we win, Alex Agamore, Bill Sherman. It'll be like, hi, hey, Oh, my God, I can't oh, believe that. And that's, and and that's, that's it. That's not going to be. So that's what we were planning on doing, just giving them those three seconds. Yeah. <laughs> We've so, been rehearsing that number, too. Anyway. It's a good one. No, if I don't know, what are we gonna? I have no idea. It sounds like the most terrifying thing I could ever possibly think of. I'm gonna be glowing. That's what I know. Really? Yeah, and mm. I'm not gonna even know what the hell is happening. Yeah. I'm gonna be up on the stage like in a total daze. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we'll write something and then not read it, and we'll improvise the whole thing. That's true, jazzmatazers. That'll be fun. It's gotta be great though. Man. If, if it happens, we're just excited yeah. to go. We're just honored to be nominated. I, we are, we are. But you know, I'm I'm secretly wishing every day. <laughs> my mom is praying. My family is praying. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I thank you so much, you Bill so Sherman, welcome. Alex Lacamoire. Word thank up. you for coming on, and it's, it's been a good time. I wish you the best of luck at the award ceremony. Thank and everybody, you. go out get the cast album. Yes. Yeah, buy the cast album. It's really good. Yes, we like it. Not because we worked on it, but it's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Very much. Bye. The call board. I haven't mentioned this in a couple of episodes, so I'll just remind everybody that if you or you know somebody who's looking for uh, audio recording work in New York City, got a great little studio here in Times Square. It's convenient, great quality, um, fun, easy to work with. Uh, my rates are reasonable. I tend to work on package rates, so you know, no, no, no unexpected overages. So uh, if you're looking or checking out what's going on, trying to get someone recorded, a demo or a show or anything, whether it's musical theater, pop, R&B, rock, I can do a bit of everything. Just give me a buzz at 646-345-3433 or drop me an email at mgilbo, that's G-I-L-B-O-E, at broadwaybullet.com. Now into the Callboard news. Expanding on its history of developing new plays and cultivating new voices for the American theater, the public theater is now accepting applications for the second year of the Emerging Writers Group, an initiative that seeks to target playwrights at the earliest stages of their careers and nurture their artistic growth by providing necessary resources and support. The Public Writers Initiative fosters a web of its support artistic relationships across generations of writers that will influence the future of contemporary American theater. Yeah, the most important thing is they actually give you a stipend of $3,000, and works by the Emerging Writers Group members will be presented in at least one reading by the public. They will also participate in a bi-weekly writers group led by the Public Literary Department and master classes with established playwrights. Visit www.publictheater.org for application form and guidelines. And I got to say, this should be an exciting opportunity for Ladia because they really are looking for undiscovered talent. In fact, if you've had too big of a mounting in New York, you aren't eligible. So uh, it, it don't feel uh, like you're out of the game if you haven't had a production yet. That's exactly what they're looking for. 
All right, next up, I Sing, a concert benefiting the Hirschberg Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer Research, will be presented June 29th at the Toquette Hall in Westport, Connecticut. The 7.30 p.m. concert will feature the talents of Natalie Weiss, Courtney Wolfson, and Danny Calvert. The threesome will be joined by local college and high school age performers from the lower Fairfield County. Attendees can expect to hear pop songs and musical theater tunes. A raffle including tickets to Broadway's In the Heights with a backstage tour led by Tony nominee Robin DeJesus will also be part of the fundraising event. Tickets priced $15 for student and $25 for adults can be reserved by emailing isingtickets at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, highly awaited or highly grown, depending on what you're things are. DreamWorks Theatricals and Neal Street Productions Limited are pleased to announce that the tickets for the pre-Broadway engagement of Shrek the Musical at the Fifth Avenue Theater will go on sale this Friday, June 13th at 9.30 a.m. Shrek the Musical will star Tony Award nominee Brian Darcy James as Shrek, Tony Award winner Sutton Foster as Princess Fiona, Tony Award nominee Christopher Sieber as Lord Farquaad, Chester Gregory II as Donkey, and Tony Award nominee John Tartaglia as Pinocchio and Kesia Lewis Evans as the Dragon. The Fifth Avenue Theater is Seattle's premier musical theater. That's their press release. I'm sure it is. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. Up close. Well, a play that was an unexpected success in every aspect, uh, quite frankly by every rule of theater, this should have just been a flop, <laughs> has uh, turned into the biggest straight play success of probably the past couple of years on Broadway, yeah. resulted in a slew of Tony nominations, and we have got one of the distinguished nominees here with us, Ron B. Reed. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. So you are a Chicago actress. Yeah, That's like, yeah. I mean, you've done a few things here in New York, but you pretty much make your Pretty much in Chicago. I uh, I joined Steppenwolf in 1979-80. I had hung out with a bunch of them in college, and originally they asked me to join the company, but I'd fallen madly in love with my boyfriend, and off I went to Minneapolis. <laughs> uh, and we were there while he was in grad school, and I worked in uh, community theater and at a savings and loan. And then uh, when Steppenwolf said, we're going to move into the city and we're going to expand the company, and we have no character women, and we really want you to come and be our resident character one. So, Is that uh, how they said it? That's exactly we how they said it. That's exactly how they said it. And at well, the time, there were only seven of them in the company, you know. And I was also a few years older than them. I was had kind of been a senior when some of them were freshmen and sophomores. So I was I was sort of used to that. And uh, they'd been toiling in the hinterlands of, of affluent North Shore Island Park, <laughs> Illinois. And they were ready to move into the city. And um, so at that point, they asked me to join. And my boyfriend said, well, you know what? I'm done with my MFA. There's no teaching jobs on the planet to be found. Let's go to Chicago. And his family was. is what to fall back on. Yeah, that's the fallback <laughs> job. And he went along because at the time, they were still giving CETA grants. Do you remember those? I was getting, you're too young. They were government grants for arts organizations, C-E-T-A. And I don't even know what that stands for. But um 
they were going to get a CETA grant. That was a big deal. So he came thinking he would be able to get paid to sort of do something, be an administrator. And he actually started out stuffing envelopes and selling tickets and then graduated up to management. And by the time he got to the top, he was the managing director for about eight, nine years at Steppenwolf. And so we came sort of as a package, and that's how we ended up, yeah. Well, but I, I'm guessing when you say that they asked you to be the resident character mm-hmm. actress, mm-hmm. it's 79? Yeah, I was I mean, young. I was, I was young, say, I, yeah. know, I know a lot of, you oh, know, Oh, char- back then. Well, char- well, I know a lot of character <laughs> actresses. You know, one of their big complaints is that, you know, really they can't really get cast in much of yeah. everything until they well, hit their 40s. that's what was so great about Steppenwolf because, you know, I had always played the mothers and the hookers, basically, in college and, and the character women, and I got to Steppenwolf and all of a sudden I got to play like ingenues, which had never <laughs> happened to me. Uh, But we were so insular. And so, you know, it was just us. And we cast ourselves and we directed ourselves and we did plays with ourselves, at least for the first four years I was there. And then it branched out a little bit because uh, it began to, uh, you know, John Malkovich had a big breakout with the movie of the week in Detroit. And uh, he had directed Balm and Gilead for us, and he had to leave before opening night. He was shooting a scene. He said, I'm going to have to go, you know, to Detroit, and gave us this big speech. And we're like, oh, my God. Little did we know that would be the prelude to many, many other things happening in the future in that regard. And he was one of the first ones that left because it – I mean, John, from the time I knew him in college, you just thought, you know, he's headed somewhere else. This is – you know, not that he wasn't committed and didn't work his butt off, but, you know, you always knew there was something kind of special and weird surrounding him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to back up and talk about a lot about your career because I think you have a different path that would really intrigue a lot of our listeners. Uh-huh. But before we do that, let's kind of get the current, you know, plug sure. out of the way, sure. which is you're in a, a little show that won some obscure little award. You know, this, this is year. the show that I turned down four times. I was doing Wicked in Chicago and making a very nice paycheck and happy as a clam. And I had done a play of Tracy's before. I'd worked with them as an actor before, and I'd done a play of his called Man from Nebraska a few years ago at uh, Steppenwolf end up. <clears throat> he kept bugging me and bugging me. He really doesn't it. have the best titles, does he? No, we won't, <laughs> we won't even go into that. But uh, yeah, they were like, what? A sausage county? What is it? You know, I was like, no, never mind. Just come and see it. And uh, so he, he had been bugging me for two years, you know, and I did a workshop, the first reading of it. And, uh, and then he would like send people to bug me. Sir, so, to surreptitiously, I would turn around and I'd say, oh, hi, how you doing? Hi, you know, Tracy wants you to do his play. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it was like there was this huge plot and I accused him of uh, doing voodoo at night. And um, he just kept after me. He said, I wrote this part for you. There's nobody but you who can do this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I read it and I was kind of like, well, you know, I know who this woman is. I've done her before. I, I, there's no, there was kind of a turn that happened towards the end of the play that did intrigue me. But I was still happy and wicked, you know, my wicked ways. And um, I said, no, 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 no. And then... Um, Wicked uh, put a few of us on creative hiatus, uh, meaning, you know, take off for a while and get yourself rejuvenated and come back. It's kind of the way they shake things up, which I think is a good idea. And so all of a sudden I found myself, hmm, well, maybe I could go do that play. So I went, this about a year ago, and last summer I went to Steppenwolf and did the play. And then my producer, David Stone from New York, 
came in to see it, and he said, all right, that's it. you got to do this play. It's going to New York. I was like, what? Are you kidding? He said, no, it's going to New York, and you need to go with it, and it's important, and we'll do whatever we need to do for you to be able to go. Which asked me how many times that happens. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't. And he's a very smart man and a very savvy producer, and, and uh, I listened to him, as well as my ex-husband, who said, what do you got to lose? Because <laughs> I've been to Broadway before, and you know the ones that you think may be the big smash hit usually die an early death, or they kind of peter out. But I really was very short-sighted. I just thought, well, if it goes, it goes. Yeah, did, did anybody, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a title that nobody really can no. pronounce. It's a long Oh, show. you should have heard it's my dress. no stars. No stars. Every, every my, that... my dressing roommate, Sally Murphy, who's a terrific actress, is, is she's in the show, and she does the version of me in Chicago going, it's never going to go to New York. It's too long. There's no stars. It's going to cost too much money. There's no way it's going to go to meh, meh, meh. And I went on and on and on. And she was like, hear me now, Rondi Reed. I'm telling you. And uh, sure enough, it came true. I mean, it does. It flies in the face of everything. I will say, though, that Tracy Letts, and I don't know. It's interesting. I've thought about this since then, whether an artist or a writer or a musician or somebody knows when what they've done is going to go. He had that sense. He said, this play has to go and it has to go now. And whether it goes with Steppenwolf or not, I'm not sure I care. But it has to go. To which we all went, oh, well. Um, he had that certainty. He had that kind of long-range vision. Which, to his credit, in the Steppenwolf Theater Company, men have had that vision. The women are a little more cautious, I think. And, uh, and though they've not, now we have an artistic director who's a woman who's very forward-thinking and leader Oriented, But before, I think it was a little timid on the women's parts. And um, Gary Sinise had that vision with True West, and other people have had that vision with other things. And Tracy said, this is going to go, and it's going to go now. And his dad, uh, who was playing the patriarch in the play at the time, was absolutely certain about it. He was certain about everything from day one. It's going to go. It's going to win the Pulitzer. It's going to do this. It's going to We were all like, okay, well, good. Parental support. That's what you need. And... Um, God rest his soul. We lost him in February, but he was able to come to New York and open in his son's play and see it succeed. He didn't see all the didn't all the, the all the later yeah. prizes, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure that, he saw it somewhere. Oh yeah, his <laughs> his uh, energy's floating around us all the time. I think. Yeah. Well, for our listeners who, for some reason, have missed what the yeah. show is about, yeah, you know, I think it's easy with, with all the the press. A lot of the press, I think, has covered. Some of the things I said. This is just a show that shouldn't have succeeded. Yeah. And somewhere in there, I think a lot of people might miss what the show is about. So maybe just kind of in a quick nutshell, what you know, tell well, the listeners what I the think, show is. You know, it's interesting because I think what it contains and why it succeeded is sort of woven together. Because I think there's something going on in this country right now. It's a very American play, written about a big sprawling dysfunctional family and all the issues that come to home to roost after a patriarch of the clan has gone. Missing and the three daughters essentially come home uh, to deal with their mom and the whole uh, home situation. I'm the um, main character's sister, <clears throat> excuse me, and we bring in all of our assorted spouses and children and emotional baggage and all the stuff that comes in with that. So you have all these uh, uh, people sort of trapped in a very bell jar 
uh, home environment and all the stuff from the past comes out and stuff that's been going on right under people's noses come out. And I think it resonates because, you know, some people walked out during the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays and said, oh, God, thank God my family's not that bad. Um, you also, under the guise of addiction, whether it's alcohol or prescription drugs or emotional abuse, psychological abuse, it's all in there. You know, it's the kind of things that we hear so much about in psychobabble and closure and all the things that we deal with in our life. But this is just out and out, you know, brutal and pitch black funny, very, very funny play about this family that comes together. It's based partially on um, Tracy's family, on his mom's side of the family, and his dad's as well. So he was witness to a lot of this stuff that's inclusive in the play firsthand and filtered through his very dry, bitter, and ironic <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> now, um, is the play still open-ended or have they... Yeah, it is still open-ended at this point. There's a few of us that are leaving. You know, I intended to only come eight weeks and stay, and now it's been eight months. So, so much for my plans as far as this whole project is concerned. <laughs> Um, so when, when you only plan on coming for eight weeks and yeah. you're coming to New York, yeah. how do you arrange for living situations? Well, you... very quickly, about two <laughs> days. You know, we only had six weeks from the time the play ended to the time we knew we were going to be in New York. It was whirlwind. And, um, you know, you're on the phone calling in every marker you have. And, you know, as a last-ditch effort, you can sleep on somebody's couch. But I was bringing my dog with me because I couldn't leave him for that long with even a good friend. So I was searching, searching, and I happened to stumble onto the Oakwood corporate apartments, and there was a wonderful lady who knew my company manager at WIC, and she went, oh, yeah, well, I'll help you. So, you know, I was calling this poor woman, and finally, three days before I left, I landed a studio apartment in Chelsea that was totally furnished, and I won't begin to tell you what I paid for it, but um, <laughs> we, the dog and I drove up in our rental car right up on 19th Street and opened the door and walked right in, and thus began our, our <laughs> sojourn in August Osage County. So has your husband been here a lot, too? Or well, I'm divorced, here? actually. Oh, no, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, that's okay. missed that step I did miss story. that step. He was boyfriend, uh, <laughs> husband, later ex-husband. No, he's incredibly supportive, and we have a terrific relationship. Um, he, up till recently, he was the managing director at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. So, But he's been uh, uh, emailing me and, and uh, calling me and, in fact, <laughs> said, well, if you do win the Tony, you need to mention your first husband. I think that's very crucial. <laughs> so, um, no, he hasn't. But, you know, everybody's in kind of a different situation. Uh, Jeff Perry, who's in the cast, uh, lives in L.A., and we've got several people that live in Chicago, and then Sally Murphy lives in New York, and they've done it differently. People's uh, spouses or family have come in periodically, or uh, Marianne, who plays uh, Karen, the daughter, her husband Scott is an actor. He was off working in D.C. and then somewhere else, and now he's able to join her in New York. So, you know, I'm the only one with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Other people left their pets. So, um, but that's been a, or our stage manager has her dogs. But that's been a great fun experience to have him with me. I never, uh, in the time that I'd worked and lived in New York, I was solo. So. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I know you haven't done a lot of New York stuff, but I saw in your credit list there was one show that I personally really liked, the Picasso. Oh, yeah, Steve Martin's play. Yeah, yeah. Were you part of the original cast? Yes, I was. Yeah, it was terrific. Uh, He came to us at Steppenwolf when we were opening our smaller theater, the studio theater, and he had said, I want to do this. I think he said to Sam Cohn, his agent, I want to do this play, but I don't want to do it in New York right away. I think he'd written it in Australia. He had gone with his wife, Victoria Tennant, on a film shoot, and he had started writing this. Um, and so all of a sudden, Steve Martin shows up at Steppenwolf to see what the space looks like and if we're interested. And uh, at the time, we thought we needed kind of an event to kick it off. And we thought, well, no better event than that. And that was right around um, – I'm trying to remember what Wait, it so was. you needed an event. Nine. Was this kind of like, OK, we got a star attached and hopefully oh, well, it's, it's like a, not a – Steve sh- Martin's going to write yeah, a play? Yeah. You know, come on. I mean, that's a marketer's dream. <laughs> and he's going to come and stay with you and work on it because his divorce is pending. <laughs> uh, Do anybody know that the play is actually going to be really good yet? At that no. Point? And let me tell you something. <laughs> the first reading, I mean, you could see the, the seeds of it there. And he's really – he's just an incredibly crazy smart guy. He was a philosophy major in college. You know, you don't necessarily get that. But I came to discover that only by being radically, brain-shatteringly intelligent can you do the kind of comedy that he does. Um, He came in, I think he'd written maybe a one act or something like that, but this was his first big foray into full length, 90 minutes, no intermission. And here he is. It was 99. No, it wasn't 99. It would have been in the mid to later 90s because he wanted it to be about the turn of the century. And so he brings together Einstein and Picasso, Mm -hmm. science and art, and then he throws in Elvis towards (laughs) the end, you know, which filtered through his sensibility and intelligence is a whole other thing. It came in... Uh, he was not used to hearing it read out loud. I think he'd had a reading. By the end of the first week, he wanted the director to fire us all because <laughs> he <laughs> thought we were so bad. And Randy and I said, okay, look, it's not a movie. Um, you, you really have you have to wait, Steve. You have to wait. Um, he gradually fell in love with the process. I mean, he really, really became a theater creature and loved it from going to, you're not getting a laugh, you're not getting a laugh, to I don't care if you get the laugh by the time we got off Broadway. But it had about, I'd I'd say it was about four years from the beginning that we started. We started in our little bitty studio, and then we went to uh, Los Angeles to the Geffen Playhouse. We did it for a limited run there, and then we retooled it and came off Broadway, and it ran for almost a year here, and then we went to San Francisco and did almost a year there, and then it went off on the tour. I think I did something like 837 performances or something like that. I learned an enormous amount about what it takes to, not that I didn't know it was hard to do comedy, but his kind of comedy, which really encompasses wit, which is a little elusive these days. And uh, wit mixed with sometimes utter slapstick. You know, one of my uh, stage, I played Jermaine, the bartender, and when Elvis magically appears, he has a stage direction that says, Jermaine behind the bar, Carol Burnett drop. That's in parentheses. I was like, Carol Burnett, drop. He goes, yeah, yeah. You know, when Carol Burnett would do her bits on the show and she would just like drop. And I was like, OK. <laughs> um, and then when we opened in L.A., of course, who shows up at the opening but Carol Burnett. And I was like, hi, Miss Burnett. I, you were a stage director. She said, oh, my God. Well, you didn't really do it, did you? you got to have sound effects, guys. That's what you need. So there were all kinds of things. And he um, 
I think, learned a lot, too. One time I asked him, I said, you've written this whole monologue for this character. I said, there's no punctuation. It just goes and goes and goes. Now, I'm assuming you want the thought groups to go like that, too. And he just stopped. And he kind of looked at me and went, I never thought about it like that. I said, well, I'm an actor. You're the playwright. I have to honor your punctuation. That is sort of my map into what you want. And I think it was opening night off Broadway. He wrote me a note, and he said, uh, Rondi, whenever you give that monologue, I feel like it's how I hear it in my head, which was a very high, high compliment to me. So he was great fun to work with. He took us out to dinner a lot, which was really, really fun. You walk into a joint with Steve Martin, you know you've hit it. He was just an incredibly creative guy and uh, very supportive, and theater became a whole new thing for him, which I think was really, at the time, all the stuff that was going on in his life, I think it was the perfect tonic for what he needed to do. Great experience. Terrific. So... All this stuff, you know, Madame Morrible for two years mm-hmm. in Chicago. and mm-hmm. uh, Have you been, since 79, have you pretty much made a consistent living as a stage actress? I have, actually. I, In the early days of Steppenwolf, uh, everybody had part-time jobs. I mean, that had been their first four years of existence. And it wasn't any different. They hadn't paid people when I arrived in 1979-80. And they were about to go into the first year where they weren't going to pay people $60 a week. This is, you know, I'm not exaggerating. That was a lot of money. So everybody else had daytime jobs. I had been a bank teller in Minneapolis, so that's what I did in Chicago. And after about two years of being a bank teller, Gary Sinise was, hey, man, you need to leave the bank. You got to make a jump to, like, doing the art, man. <laughs> it was like, great, Gary. You want to pay my rent? Um but it really was him. He sort of said, you got to either go big or stay home, you know. Take a teaching job in theater. Do something that's related to your field or you'll always sort of be in this netherworld of that. And also we were moving up in our salary and we were getting acclaim and things were opening up to us. And so, yeah, knock on wood, I've been very lucky. I've done other things, certainly. Um As an actor, and I have the luxury of having an artistic home, which I'm very, very grateful for and very aware of. I don't know if I would be an actor in New York if I had to be here. It's just so goddamn hard. And And I have friends here and I have friends in L.A. I don't know how they do it. I really don't. I've been so lucky that 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 Steppenwolf has been there for me. I mean, I fled L.A. about 10, 11 years ago because everything had started to dry up. And I've had friends that have totally, completely left the field. They've gone into alternate careers. And you meet people that are so beaten down and so, uh, I don't know, sad. And I think, you know, I have nothing to bitch about. In my, well, I can, but <laughs> but it's not fair. What advice would you have for the the actors or the creative people out there who who would like to maybe try to see if there's a way to forge a career without having to do the hubs? Well, I think it's hard. Uh, We were told, though, when Steppenwolf was in the early pre-forming stages, we had, uh, you know, people that we thought were big stars, you know, Leonard Nimoy and Carl Malden and Lee Strasberg came to Illinois State and they would hold workshops and stuff, you know. And what they said to us over and over and over and over was, you don't have to go to New York, you don't have to go to L.A., you can do theater where you are. So they might have been the early proponents of the regional theater system, certainly. But, I mean, that stuck in our head. And that was the 
That was the whole uh, pretext of Steppenwolf. We'll do it ourselves. We were like that in college. You know, we were rehearsing at two in the morning and selling day-old donuts to make money to rent equipment. We were kind of the guerrilla, uh, you know, anti-establishment bunch. So it was something that that um, kind of came naturally to us. And I don't know. I think I've counseled a lot of people. I've had students in my class who I could see were just at the end of their rope and very depressed. I've said to some people, maybe you need to move. Maybe you need to go to a different city. Well, I've always thought if, you know, if, if people were in the theater for the sheer art of it, you know, that that's it, different. That, that yeah. it, it, it does almost make sense to not be in New York because, you know, absolutely, because you won't work here <laughs> and you'll still do waiting, you know, yeah. jobs. And my initial thought when I was in yeah. high school, just came out to New York for the first time. I just kind of the thought hit me. It was like, wow, it was like, you know, stay in a, you know, yeah. another community. You can go to a, Seattle. You can go you to know. Louisville. You can go to Minneapolis. You work can a go job to, and actually yeah, act a lot. Act. And <laughs> I've had people that were equity members, union members, come to me and say, what can I do? I can't. I said, I said, do you care whether you make money? Do you have a husband who supports you? Do you have another job that you can do? And they go, yeah. And I said, then drop your union status. Because if you go non-equity, you'll never stop. It depends. It's exactly what you say. There's only X amount of equity jobs out there. I'm not saying don't go union. I'm just saying if you want to work and that's your priority, then reconsider how you go about it. And also, too, the timing. Sometimes people will be like, I, you know, and I see it a lot in younger uh, folks that I work with in Wicked and other projects. It's like, it should have happened to me two years ago, and they're 19. <laughs> They've lost sort of that sense of you have to serve an apprenticeship. I'm not saying you can't be discovered overnight or you can't vault into something overnight, but there's a lot to be said for putting in your time. And, you know, if you find yourself in a situation like some people did with me in Wicked, you know, there were some kids in that chorus that would come into my room and talk to me and say, would you mind coaching me? And I go, absolutely. And they say, how much do you charge? I said, nothing for you. You ask me. You went out of your way. I'd be happy to do it for you. So there are some people that are smart that take advantage of their surroundings. And there are the other ones that sit on the bar stools and bitch because they're not a star. And if they're patient, you know, 30 years into a very 30 years? great yeah. career. They I, might listen, get a I just had Tony a conversation nomination. with Patty Lapone over at, uh, they had a Tony lunch where there was no press. And I said, Patty, it's just so, yeah, I mean, it was great to meet her. I'd never met her. And she threw her arms around me because she loved the play so much. And uh, I said something about, well, it's so great, you know, and all these women and da da da. And she goes, yeah, and of a certain age, it only took me 29 years to get here, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that is, if it's any kind of example, but I mean, there's, and there's also a lot of incredibly young, talented people that really do their work and do everything and and legitimately rise to the top. But I think if you go in it to become a star or be a star and the work goes on the back burner, I don't know if the gods are with you. It's like in L.A. I felt like that. Somebody said, why did you leave? And I said, it was kind of like I just stayed at the roulette wheel a little too long. It wasn't that I didn't think I was good. It wasn't that I didn't get jobs. There were so many factors that were out of my control. And I think that's somewhat what happens in New York as well. There's so many people. And there's so many things that are out of your hands. And then you become a really depressed, bitter actor, which is not a fun person to be around. 
Yes, well, some great advice. <laughs> and, uh, and your career has definitely been full circle, and it sounds like you got a very great attitude through it all. Well, so it ha- but a- I mean, you know, somebody <laughs> said to me, it's a long-distance game. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not a sprint. You know, and just when you think you've nailed everything and figured it out, the bottom falls out, and then you start all over again. I mean, you talk to Deanna, who plays uh, the matriarch in August Osage County in this incredible performance. You know, the standing joke was, yeah, she's never going to work again. That's what she'd say. Well, I don't know if I'm ever going to work again. I can't get any jobs. I can't get any audition. So, you know, you hear that from movie stars. You hear it from bigger stars. You hear it from people that... Other people look at us and say, oh, boy, you've got it made. And that's not, you know, it's like life for an actor is an internal audition in one form or another. And if you don't like it, well, <laughs> our college professor said, if you don't like it, go into hotel motel management. They always need people in that field. Well, I'm sure Tony nominee added to your resume <laughs> is going to help with those auditions. Hopefully it will, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I thank you so much, Rondi Reed, thank for coming you. out and being so candid. And everybody get out and check out August Osage County before Rondi flees back to Chicago. Yeah, I'm going back <laughs> the day of the There's a few of us that are leaving. But listen, Estelle Parsons is going into it and Frank Woods. It's a, just a terrific cast. And uh, it'll be a whole different thing. And we've had a lot of people come back and see it two or three times. So... You know, I I think it's worth another visit to Osage Osage. Oh, bad host. No, bad. it's an it's an Indian name. So you, I, I we've had so many. Okay, pronunciations. Well, yeah, what is the name? What is the it's name August mean? Osage County? It's taken from a poem uh, by a mentor teacher that Tracy. I think it's the colon that throws people out. It it's probably August is colon. Well, and Osage then you know people County. are like August Wilson. I thought he had you know like no 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 you know and then and then November the play November we <laughs> yeah. had that you know so it was August November what the hell. And somebody said, yeah, I went in. It was August. I came out. It was January. That's how long that play is. But thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, you too. Up close. All right, our Tony special here continues. We've got uh, Tony nominee for Best Supporting Actor in a Musical, Daniel Breaker, here with us, who is excited to be getting his... uh, is this your first Tony nomination? Oh, definitely my first Tony. Yeah, Tony. I'm getting my my sea legs here. And uh, how many musicals have you done before uh, finally landing this uh, nomination for a musical? Um, counting this one, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is sort of the first. You know, I, I think I, I guess professionally, I did you know the community theater thing, and um, I, you know I did my West Side Story in high school, and. I think uh, I did HMS Pinafore. Were you a jet or a shark? (laughs) (laughs) I was. I was. I was a full representative for the sharks because I was the only black guy at that school (laughs) in Moline, Illinois, to be in the show. So it was just like me and a bunch of uh, rugby players. Now, um, in your career, it's a really interesting role that you're playing. I mean, you really get to go all over the place in in this show and and have a lot of fun. But one of the big things is you're basically playing young Stu. Yes. Who's wrote, acting, in everything in the show. And how, how was that, shaping that character with the guy you're kind of playing right there the whole time? Well, actually, he gave us a lot of, uh, he gave me a lot of freedom. You know, one of the reasons, uh, in some ver- some version of the show, I was called Young Stu. Um, but as time went on, uh, he wanted to. Uh, he didn't get want away to be known as old Stu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. <laughs> but he wanted, he wanted a bit more. Um, 
universal youth. So that's why we, the kid doesn't have uh, a name. He's sort of as a symbol. So there are parts that are uh, directly from Stu's life, but then a lot of stuff he allowed me to um, sort of bring to the table, like from my my days of being an awkward, lonely, shy kid. Um, and then also I just sort of pull things from other people. I, there was a kid who came to the show uh, who was, uh, I think, maybe 15 and loved the show and was very awkward and shy and had these, like, little mannerisms. So I thought, I'm going to steal those and sort of put those in the show. So um, I don't know his name, but I'm using him I'm <laughs> for, this, uh, <laughs> for this production. But, um, uh, yeah, that, so, so it's both – it's very liberating to – to just get up there and be a kid for a little while. Um, Stu never found, never took his writing as this kind of precious doctrine. He really encouraged us to bring our own, our own two cents to the show. And how hard is it? You know, there, this show has a lot of vocal demands in it. Uh, so it's pretty loud, pretty you know, pretty rock. And how is it doing this eight times a week? Yeah, it's a it's a vocal challenge. I was not really uh, ready for that. I mean, the the problem isn't necessarily the rock. Because that's all, that's sort of easy. You just sort of like scream into a microphone. The challenge was actually raising my voice up to be this little kid at uh, at the beginning. Um, my voice is naturally slightly lower than what I what I play in the show, and so to be this fourteen year old, it has to be a little higher. I'm singing some stuff in the falsetto um, at the top of the show, and then I slowly kind of go more into sort of rock heavy stuff um, near the end. So that's the that's the challenge on those Wednesday matinees when you. I'm thinking, do I really have to go up this high? I guess I do. <laughs> so you've you've been with the show for pretty much the whole development process, or when, um, did, you, when did you come in? To I joined it in 2005 show? at Sundance, um, where it was uh, he was just workshopping Act Two. Um, they this was when it was uh, an all white cast, with the exception of the mom and the kid. So yeah, yeah, a little, a little, a little different. <laughs> Some things have changed, <laughs> to say the least. Um, well, and and it it still isn't the traditional black musical. And I'll, yeah. I'm going to paraphrase a quote and ask you a question. What's the closest you've come to hustling dimes on the mean streets of South Central? <laughs> oh Lord, <laughs> my God, I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever been that cl- been close to hustling. You know, I mean, you know, I grew up in Germany, so that doesn't really. Uh, there was no no hustling and diming going on where I grew up. Oh yeah, oh you said Illinois. So you actually grew up with some in Germany too. Yeah, Arm- Army brat. I was born in Manhattan, Kansas, of all places, the Little Apple. Yes, yes, it is called the Little Apple. Um, but uh, I spent time in Germany, Illinois. My family's from Florida. I mean, I, all over the place. Well, that's actually interesting because you're. The, you know, your character moves from place to place to place trying to find himself. And how much did that growing up and moving around kind of help you with this role and in, in, in oh, yeah. shaping your... I think, it was, I think it was immediate. I think I did all my research, uh, <laughs> you know, over the, last, <laughs> over the last 13 years. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Stu and I clicked so easily and so quickly at the, um, when I first met him is uh, uh, I think... I, I think I can relate to um, the, you know, sort of painfully close to the um, uh, these masks that this kid put on to survive um, through the different worlds that he was traveling into. Um, so it's sort of, I don't know, it's pretty close to home. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> you know, I'm curious. Do you know how this works? When I saw the, you know, when I saw the show, I was actually thinking that there's going to be more of a chance that you'd be up for a lead actor. Because, I mean, your part's pretty huge. I mean, Stu's definitely, you know, dominating on the thing. But you got in what 
any situation. We called a lead, and I'm kind of wondering if you know anything about the politics of how it ended up that you were designated. Was that the show's decision to push you as supporting? Yeah, or I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I, I think I. Th- yeah, I, I, don't, I actually don't know how that whole system works. I mean, I'm, I think I'm it plays brand. in your favor because you definitely got one of the juicier supporting. Yeah, <laughs> roles. And I, think, I think what's good is that we are not in the same. Stu and I are not in the same category, yeah. and that I think that might help us help our chances. But I think if we were in the same pocket, then we might lose. Uh, you know, it might take away the the chances of either of us winning in that category. Um, but I mean, in in a sense, you know, if you look at the play, I am. Secondary to Stu, so yeah. it does make sense that I would be in, in more featured. Yeah, it wasn't like oh, I didn't feel like it was a slap in the face, but it just no, you no, know, no. It, it does feel like two leads. Yeah, you know, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas August Assange has two lead females competing against yes, each other. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> two divine actresses. Well, I know the soundtrack for Passing Strange just uh, came out on uh, Shikaboom, and you came walking in with a little copy here, mm-hmm. and um, hot off the presses. Uh, I'm trying to think, is there a song in here that you'd like us to play that uh, features you predominantly? Oh, I didn't even know that was going to be an option. Um, what's a good one? Um, all the songs are good. So uh, if you want something completely funky, then Soul Brother. Uh, well, actually, Stone. Stone is probably one of my favorite songs. Um, it's, uh, you know, that's also with Issa Davis, who plays the mother. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really... Uh, one of my favorites. Also, that version is uh, a sort of hybrid between what we do at the at the Belasco and what we did at the public, which we had to change for timing issues and everything. So that's um, okay. That's so fun. The, now I know you recorded the soundtrack actually live at yes. the performance. So when you say it's a hybrid, did you change up certain things for just that performance? That yeah, you just to make, yeah, just to make it a little more exciting, a little more funky. That was a fun day. I mean, that was. I mean, it was exhausting, but that was a fun day because the Monday before I'd just gotten married, and then, <laughs> and then the following Monday I recorded this album, which is I don't know what I was thinking, but um, but it was fun because we were exhausted, and and the audience that came was so supportive, like a lot of fans, a lot of Stu fans, a lot of Strange heads, which we're calling the people that see Passing Strange more than five times, um, <laughs> so that that made for a a sort of freeing. Um, kind of concert version of the show, which is always good for us because, you know, we do the show eight times a week and then every once in a while we go and do, like we played the Obies or we played Joe's Pub and that sort of uh, um, invigorates us a bit more and then we try, we bring new stuff to the show as a result. This is probably one of the few shows that is actually different each night, like genuinely mm-hmm. different each night. Um, given, Stage managers love that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They are, <laughs> they're like, great, sign me up. Um, but, but it's, yeah, you know, the... The audience is different. Stu is different. You know, Stu is also not uh, a theater guy, so doing shows eight times a week doesn't doesn't uh, make sense. So he does whatever he can to keep it fresh and keep it new. And um, I'm still blown away that he can keep up that vocal performance eight times a oh, week. It's ridiculous. His voice. It's ridiculous. Um, how I don't know how he gets through it. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's take a listen here to Stoned. And then we'll come right back. All right, great. He measured time passing and hits from the bong. All day cafe hangs and unfinished songs. Then her keys weighed more than the axe in his hand. When he tried to write a song, he knew she wouldn't understand. She's living in a phony paradise. So many things she doesn't realize. She's basking in hell's sunshine. How does this song go? He's trying to write a song, but the song is writing him. It's a song about paradise. 
wearing thin. Today paradise was the enemy. Today the real became routine. Today my edges dull together. Yeah, that's it. And there's no point left to dream. I wanna scream. professional musical uh so you've done a lot of shakespeare though professionally is that right yeah baby so what got you into kind of the shakespearean mode you know i what i fuels your love for that yeah well i guess um how did i get into it? i guess school for one uh, juilliard is all based in the classics so i sort of uh i, I dove into it there and um What's uh, beautiful about Shakespeare is that he's got this um, deep understanding of musicality and rhythms and uh, a love of poetry, um, which in turn is actually makes the 
is much like stew in, in a sense. But um, but I did I I loved I loved the music that came that comes out of Shakespeare text. Um, uh, I'm also a big classical fan, and it, it reminds me of Bach. So and so there's just a, my love of music and my love of, of language sort of joined together with with good old Shakespeare, and I and I just can't get enough of it. I mean, I I absolutely love it. I'm I'm a geek like that. Um, so that's why I just like I just keep just keep them coming. So hopefully, uh, if anybody's out there and wants to cast me in Hamlet, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, with, speaking of classical backgrounds, the show as it shifts from kind of location to location almost shifts in presentation mode to like an homage to certain classical styles. Like it's it's hard to not see a little bit of Brechtian influence in the the German section. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what to call the Amsterdam section at the moment, but it, but each thing kind of switches styles and feels very not as modern as the music is. It doesn't feel like it's modern now, but like you know, going for like what was considered cutting edge modernism at various eras and times yeah. in theater. And do you know if that was like a, a very conscious decision with the, the director and the writing? Or well, I think how Stu. Grew up, he listened to all different types of music. Um, I mean, from you know, from what Josephine Baker was doing, from um, you know, uh, uh, Bach, Wagner, um, lots of punk rock. So I think you know, lots of uh, blues, some R and B. I mean, like you name it, he was he was listening to it. So I think that's just naturally how his mind thinks. I mean, that's just where the music that comes out of Stu's head is that is that. So. Um, I don't even know if it was necessarily a, a conscious choice. I think that's just how he, how his mind works, which is fascinating, <laughs> to say the least. So what has been the most uh, interesting part for you along the process of taking it from 2005 and Sundance to here? Any, any interesting stories or tidbits of uh, the unexpected as it made its own journey? I, honestly, the most unexpected is here. Uh, you know, I never thought that... You'd be on Broadway Bullet? <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, my God, I finally, I've arrived. <laughs> um, <laughs> all those kids out there, you can dream big too. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, no, I just, uh, this was not, this was not uh, in the stars. This, uh, this show, I mean, I, I was very um, sort of disheartened by Broadway um, so I never really imagined that a show this important couldn't make it. So the fact that we're doing this every day is... And that uh, they didn't get Luke Perry? Yeah, I mean, I'm, like, I'm surprised <laughs> Dulé Hill's not playing my part. <laughs> I think we need to make up the cast. We should make up the celebrity cast list. And see what... Celebrity passing strange. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Harvey Firestein is the mother. <laughs> <laughs> He'd do it. Um, so yeah so so doing it you know and also I gotta say the uh, the Broadway audiences are surprising me I think you know the show is about breaking down these stereotypes and what I realize is that I have a lot of stereotypes put on your typical Broadway audience theater goer um and they seem to surprise me also. You know, you got these guys that are sitting in the front row who I think they're not gonna like this at all. That this is not this is not Gypsy, and they are not going to enjoy this. And then by the end of it, they're standing up on their feet screaming and having a great time, which is perfect. <laughs> well, the truth is, while going a lot of different places, it is very, you know, uh, 
standard musical theater in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it isn't. But the story and the path and 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 you know the redemption and the search is very you know Pippin esque. Yeah. Almost. You know. Yeah, I think the the story is highly familiar and and traditional. I mean, it's a coming of age story. You know, at its simplest form, that's what it is. Uh, the the way in which it's told is. Uh, unique and has never been talked about before. I, like I don't, I cannot think of any play or musical or movie or anything that has really uh, talked about black middle class teenage angst. I really haven't um, haven't seen that. CW is working on it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're working on a thing. <laughs> Maybe we'll take the show. We'll make a series out of uh, Passing Strange with CW. <laughs> Well, I think this actually flows quite nicely into uh, another song from the show, uh, The Black One. Yes, a, a favorite. <laughs> Cult classic. Now, this kind of hit me at the point where just when you thought Stu couldn't throw any more musical styles at us, uh, this another one comes out of the blue. But anything else that you'd like to kind of set up about this song in the show? Well, you know, the show's about breaking down stereotypes, and then this goes even further into it. I mean, it really it goes to, to sort of the heart of... Of, uh, of stereotypes, which is a lot of fun. And in this song, you also prove that, you know, despite the fact that it's your first musical, you can also dance. <laughs> Do it all. <laughs> all right, here's the black one from the cast album. Who lends the club that speakeasy air? The black one, the black one. Who dances like a god and has wunderbar hair? Der Schwarzer. Now he's the life of every soiree He'll give the bums rush to your ennui Turn up these lights cause I barely can see the black one Is he the postmodern lawn jockey sculpture? The black one The black one Or just a soul on a roll exploding your culture That black one Creates surfaces And then comes the fee He's doing the same thing Except I call the surface me He's dancing in a cave But I'm the one with the key And he's the black one He's the real voice of America And Berlin, listen closely Speaking as a Negro from Verica he was automatically an expert on its evils and authority on its crimes. And he could wax lyrical, his knowledge was almost empirical of oppression from the present back to slavery times. thought he was that cute but now a squad of ice queens are in hot pursuit i'm super fly in the buttermilk and we fight him say a boot because i'm the black one i envy you so much i want to be reincarcerated as a black man oh, the 
Okay, when you came in the room and I asked about the Tonys, you you told me your family is mostly <laughs> happy about it. <laughs> so I, I gotta ask, who's the holdout? <laughs> well, no, I guess I guess I, I I sort of misquoted my family. They are they are they are uh, they are beyond excited. Um, one one of my cousins, however, did say. Um, uh, you know, congratulations. He saw he saw me on the View, and I think the nominations were out by then. And he saw me dancing. He was like, "That's great, Danny, but you're still a nerd." <laughs> I'm like, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> no, but my my parents. Is there, is there somebody in your family who's going? Oh, damn it! Now he's never going to do accounting. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, oddly enough, they were very they were, they've been very supportive. You know, a lot of my family's in the military, and and I I think as a kid growing up, I thought they were going to want me to join the army. And I, I remember going to my dad and saying, like, Dad, I don't want to be in the Army. And Dad was like, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you weren't going to be in the Army in the first place. I didn't want <laughs> you to be in there. Um, I don't know if that's just because he didn't want me to uh, sacrifice my life or he just didn't think I would be able to hold a gun. But um, <laughs> he was, uh, he's been very supportive. They, are, they did their shopping. They got their gowns. They got their tuxedos. The breakers will be... Uh, owning the Tonys. They will really be... Uh, <laughs> Is it going to be hard to go back to Shakespeare after this, or are there going to be people going, the people that you did before, where they're going to go, oh, no, he doesn't do Shakespeare. Oh, he no, no, not at all. Musical yeah. theater. <laughs> Where's his guitar? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I sort of look forward to, I, I love the balance of the two worlds. Like, I, I love I love being able to do something as wild as this musical, and, I'm, you know, I want to do some Shakespeare also, you know. Um, the balance is what's refreshing, which is also why I think this show is so important to have on Broadway. Um, because you have these two, it's good, you know, I think a lot of times people say, oh, we, we want to get rid of all the classical musicals and we want to do, like, just like, it needs a whole new facelift. And we want, like, the Spring Awakenings and the In the Heights and the Passing Stranges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, what I really think we need are both. I think we need these funky downtown musicals and we need Gypsy and South Pacific so that we can bounce, so that audience members can choose and hopefully they'll choose both and go see, you know, I want the same people that see Patti LuPone and Gypsy, I want to see this show and vice versa. Now, I, I want to take this question out of race because I think there's a lot of other people that fit this thing, but you're, you're an actor who defies a lot of the traditional stereotypes that producers and casting people, I think, look, look for when they when they... I think there's certain people when they see their type, you know, not just black people, they there's cast in a certain thing. Yeah, um, a lot of times, and you've clearly managed to weave a career that that kind of breaks those preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And for other people out there who seem to want to be, you know, producers want to put them into one area, and they either don't fit that really, or they're resistant to that. Kind of what's your what's your advice career wise for getting breaking down those preconceived barriers in the industry well I think I think you know for you don't have to always do what they tell you to do I mean I think that the the big thing for me when I got out of school was people really wanted to put me as this sort of thug uh, and I, I mean and that I must have shot so many auditions <laughs> as this thug it's like are you are you real are you serious I don't I, and, and then I know a lot of people that were like well I gotta I gotta do this and I gotta play the play this part 
but you don't have to. I, I think there's this sort of desperation that comes out of school where it's like, well, you, you're supposed to do everything. Um, but you have the power to say no or say yes to whatever parts that you want to take. Um, and of course, working is good and it's good to work. Don't get me wrong. And it's also, it's also you know, don't go being a jerk saying like, well, I'm, I don't do this. <laughs> but, but I think... I think the first thing I realized was that I, I don't necessarily have to cater to that stereotype if I don't want to play that stereotype. That's, that's what I got. <laughs> and and did, it, did you find it difficult to get the parts at first around until people kind of started accepting that? Or, or did things just kind of work out for you in, in your decision with that? Yeah, I think it was sort of hard. But eventually people realized that that's the path that I would much rather go and that I actually can go in that path. I don't have to be the thug and I don't have to be like the black friend. You know, there's, there's like a list of <laughs> of, uh, of the, you know, the the places, the parts that they sort of stuff you into. But, um, yeah. So have you thought about what's next yet? Or or is this is this all consuming or do you have kind of feelers out for future projects? Well, I have a baby on the way. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, uh, uh, that's my next project. <laughs> um, uh, but no, but um, I, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's some things, there's some things I can't discuss yet, but, um, but there's some stuff that would be, would be enjoyable that I would, that are not necessarily a rock musical, <laughs> which might be um, fun for me to take a vacation from, from that. And then, but you know, whatever, whatever pops my way, I'll sink my teeth into all right. Well, Daniel, I thank you so much for coming on the show, the, the pinnacle of your achievement. Yes, here I am. I've made it. <laughs> thank you. I'm and, just waiting for my lifetime achievement now. <laughs> and I wish you the best of luck at the Tony Awards and, and your future career. Great. Thank you. Up Close. Well, South Pacific has been getting just tons of attention here in its uh, Broadway revival. And... Uh, received a slew of Tony nominations. In fact, uh, Michael Yergin, who is here with us today, is Tony nominated for the set design. He also walked away with the drama desk for that. We're also possibly expecting uh, Scott Lehrer, who was nominated for sound design. Uh, he called us, he got stuck in traffic and told us to get started without him, and we're hoping he can get here uh, before we're done. But in the meantime, uh, we I've been chatting a lot with Michael Yergin beforehand, and I guarantee that we could probably talk for hours on here alone. So how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you, Michael? Good. Uh, yeah. Now, you've also are already a Tony winner for Light in the Piazza. Right, right. And... Uh, uh, that was gunning a th- for your second one. <laughs> I guess you could call it that. <laughs> how did how did the Tonys change things? You know, I thought that once you won a Tony, that you know your answering machine would be full of producers just you know begging you to come work with them, and it wasn't the fact at all. In fact, uh, you know, nothing happened, nothing changed. Did they all feel they couldn't afford you anymore. Maybe now? that's what it was. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it does it, it does wonders for your self esteem. I'll tell you that because you kind of crank along in this business, and especially in the design end of it, and you kind of just have your blinders on, and you go from show to show, and you think, oh, thank God, I didn't screw that one up, and on to the next one. And then suddenly something like that comes out of the blue, and you're recognized, and people are talking about it, and you just sort of feel like, well, it wasn't really that much different from another show that I did, or 
you know, it wasn't, uh, to me, it didn't seem like that. It was that exciting or cutting edge. But well, This is but in people, no way a, sl- a slam, but yeah. does it seem sometimes unfair? I think a lot of times it just kind of boils down to the getting rolled up in the whole show. The whole show has gotten so much excitement. You're absolutely right. And uh, that particular show had evolved, and I wasn't actually part of the original production. I, I had been offered the original production and couldn't do it when they first did it in Seattle, Light in the Piazza. And I actually came to it in Chicago after they had changed directors, and Bart Shear, who was, was the actual producer of the first production, actually took it over. And uh, to watch that show evolve from a little chamber musical into kind of this much bigger full full out production, mainly because of the space at Lincoln Center, because it's such a, a big theater, was thrilling. And it was, I think you're right, that the set was such a part of the collaborative nature of the whole of the whole piece. Adam Gettle was very much involved in the choices we made. Bart, the costume designer Catherine Zuber, the lighting designer Chris Ackerland. You couldn't you could it was hard to tell where one person's work stopped and the other one began. And I think that was sort of the nature of the whole thing. You Good know, point. and I think a lot of that, you know, getting wrapped up in the show comes down to I think ultimately a lot of times the best design work mm-hmm. is when you don't notice the totally. design work. Totally. You know, you know, you, you know, your work in South Pacific was it was great. There was a lot of big pieces. There were a lot of actually right. big things that could have been more screaming. Look at me, but yeah. it, it was all a part of the show. It wasn't like, oh look, the chandelier is descending <laughs> from the thing. Oh, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, we weren't singing the set. No, well, that's a good thing because there's a lot to sing in that show <laughs> besides the set. But you know, Bart's idea about South Pacific from the beginning was that uh, when we were. And it, we really worked on it for like about two years. And just those initial conversations, he said, I just see, he said, all I have in my mind is this idea that there's this beautiful beach with one palm tree and it's totally unpolluted. It's totally beautiful. And that from the distance, you hear these, so, these sailors singing Bloody Mary and they're chasing this woman over the back who's like Mother Courage with her cart full of crap and shrunken heads and all the stuff she's selling. And as they appear, then the island becomes occupied, that all the detritus of, of putting on a war arrives, cranes, airplanes, tanks, whatever we can assemble. And that was the base, that was the core of the design right there, you know, that, in that one little statement. And once he said that, then it just all sort of, it just all sort of came into place. It was amazing. Now, in preparation for a big show like this, how much discussion pre-work is there? I mean, especially with um, the lighting designer, who he also right. got a nomination. I mean, oh yeah, so yeah. Much, I did know. I mean, you guys, especially in the show, were very tight on you know some you know some settings were mm-hmm. almost taken care of entirely by the lights, and right, then exactly. others, you know, you know, with you know the set and. Right, the way and it all worked together. Of, and the depth of field that you created, which was really accentuated by the lighting. How much well, arguing it, discussion you, is there uh, to get You that? have to start, I mean, with South Pacific because it dealt with real events. It was a real place. It was a real time. It wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't in a, it, though it's romanticized, we, there was a lot of research involved. When it was first done in 1949, it wasn't that long after the war. And the war was still very fresh in people's minds. Now, the wars that are in our minds are other wars. So we spent a lot of time uh, in the early part of the process really pouring through National Geographic magazines from the 40s that were the amazing documentation in color of, of what those outposts were like. And 
the 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 island depicted in the musical South Pacific is Espiritu Santo, which is part of uh, what was co- then called the New Hebrides. Now it's called Vanuatu. But it was a staging area. It wasn't really a place where the combat happened. They were all waiting to to go off to war, to fight the wars, the battles at Guadalcanal and Tarawa and all of those horrendously bloody wars that, that happened. And so a lot of the research was just looking at what they wore, what the, the Quonset huts were like, what the, the airplanes were like, what the trucks were like, what they, you know, looking at pictures of Bob Hope entertaining the troops, which sort of became the basis of what happens in the second act. We knew very much that the first act was all about the fun and the preparation and the, the crazy American uh, entrepreneur Billis and what all he concocts to occupy these people's time because it was hot. They were waiting. They had nothing to do but polish and clean and, and get everything ready. And, and uh, then in the second part of the, of the, the piece in Act Two, when, they, when it actually happens, it's a much darker world. It's, uh, we actually changed the backdrop of the show from a more sunny you know, island in the distance to a darker, stormy battle going on in the distance kind of a, a feeling. So, and a lot of that came through the, those early conversations with Bart, with Kathy Zuber. We were working on other projects. We'd find time to sit and talk. One idea would evolve after another. So that's how it kind of came together. The lighting designer actually came in last, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you get to a point where you can't really... Don came in when we were pretty much... We had the set or the, the bones of the set... And then we really discovered that, that he, he really had to take over for Bali High because we didn't want to put like a little native hut on the stage for Leah. That it was something more than that. So these blinds and all of that stuff sort of worked out. And he did. He worked miracles with it. We never dreamed it could look as beautiful as what he did with it. Well, now, when I was, I was looking on IBDB and, you know, and your credit list is way too long to mention you know, oh. a lot of things. Like Light in the Piazza, Wake and yeah. Sing, and then, yeah... Uh, Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Which you brought up one thing when you, how long you've been working on this. How much, how many projects are you working on at once usually? Usually, I mean, you, it's, it's interesting because a set designer kind of works, it, the, a set design takes on different forms. There's a period when you're researching. When you're really, not, you may be doing scribbles, but you're basically putting yellow post-its in books with pictures. And you're meeting with the director and you're talking about the play or the musical or what, uh, and, and not in any specific way. He doesn't come to you and say, oh, I need a Quonset out here and a lighting post, you know. And it, it's really just talking about what the feeling is. What are you trying to convey to the audience? And there's that whole period. Then there's the period when you just can't help yourself, but you have to start making some rough little models and some little sketches, and you start to play in three dimensions, usually in a tiny scale for me, like eighth inch to a foot, just because it's quick, it's easy. It's fast. You can transport it all over the world if, the, if you're working in different places and you meet with the director. Then there's the part after you start to get concrete with ideas where you start drafting and you get into the execution phase of it. Once you're at that point, you, know, you can be working on three or four different shows in different layers, different levels of, uh, of progress on the show. Once you're in the drafting area, that stuff you could turn over to an assistant or something. So it's usually for me anywhere from three to four at the most, I would think, you know. And but again, in different mm-hmm. stages of production, not all. If you're if you're just starting from ground zero and they're all in the same stage, then you're insane to take. What's it. the closest your what's the closest openings you've ever had? 
You mean where it's really been like from the time you design it to the... Well, no, I mean like opening nights of two shows you've oh. designed. What, what has been the closest that you... I'll tell you, the, 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 <laughs> the weirdest one was I at once, because I do a lot of opera as well, and over a period of about five years, I designed three different productions of Madame Butterfly, and they were with different directors, and they couldn't be alike. They had to be different. So, you know, I sort of got the first one done, and then it, it was put in a box. It was canceled. So it sat in a box for about a year. Then the next one came along, and I just completely forgot about that one and worked out a whole other concept with a new director. And then at the last minute, one came along from Glimmerglass Opera. <laughs> that is actually the one that was just at City Opera. And I did that. By some strange quirk of fate, they all ended up opening within about a week of each other. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I remember leaving the second theater after it had opened and walking into the other theater during a tech rehearsal and hearing that soprano sing Un Bel D, One Fine, and my stomach just tightened up and I thought, I don't think I can get through this. I don't think I can listen to this again. <laughs> but it's just, you never know. That's what, that's what makes, uh, I think, uh, set design and working in the theater interesting and fun, if you can call it fun, <laughs> that, uh, that you never know what these situations are going to be. It's totally unpredictable. So when doing a big show in New York where we don't have space, you no, know, we don't we have don't. storage, you know, we don't have wide streets and stuff, right. what are kind of the physical, technical challenges of building and moving a Big set. Well, it's a little bit like, you know, scratching your head and patting your stomach, whatever that thing is, or walking down the staircase and chewing gum at the same time. Because in a way, what's on the stage, the look of what's on the stage is sometimes determined by where it has to live when it's not on stage. And in the case of the Vivian Beaumont Theater, we're blessed with a huge backstage area. The, the proscenium opening, the picture frame opening of the theater, though it's a thrust theater, is almost the same as the Metropolitan Opera on the other side of the, the, the plaza. And uh, so you walk into that space when it's empty, and I have to tell you, it's very daunting. You do feel your stomach sort of go, oh, my God, what am I going to do with all of this? And, and is it going to overwhelm this, the actors? Is it going to be too big? It, but somehow, by, the, by really involving the upstage space, it makes the, the thrust stage space seem smaller, but you're blessed because there is room off stage to get rid of all of that. In most of the Broadway theaters, uh, they're all about real estate. And sometimes you have a lot of space on one side of the stage and very little, like the Long Acre. I think there's four feet on the stage right side and 12 or 18 feet on the other, and the back wall is angled. So you never know what, you, what you're going to get yourself into. It's, it's, and especially before a theater is decided, in many cases, on Broadway, you're kind of designing in the dark. You work out something, but once you're assigned a theater, once you get a theater, then you have to revise everything to fit within that. It's like those little puzzles where you push the letters around. You know? <laughs> it's like a shell game. What's the most radical? Uh, th that is an interesting question because I know a lot of times people yeah. are waiting for a theater to open last yeah. minute. And yeah. What's the most radical redesign you've had to do based on a theater change or a, or a, a final theater that didn't maybe mesh as well with your initial ideas? I'm trying to think. I think that it was. Um, I did a. It wasn't very success. In fact, it wasn't successful at all. In fact, it was a flop. It was. Uh, <laughs> you start. You know, thinking the best. <laughs> it was a play. It was a, a review called Fascinating Rhythm a review of Gershwin songs, and uh, we did them. We did it first at Hartford Stage Company, in which was a thrust stage, and we did. We tried to do a very radical 
revisionist kind of a review of those songs. And we actually put the orchestra in the audience. We had uh, some of the audience on stage mixed in with the, the singers. And it was thrilling. It was really thrilling. Then it, it moved from a thrust space to uh, two theaters in Arizona, one in Phoenix and one in Scottsdale, I think. And we had to redesign it for a proscenium space. And there was all sorts of input from the producers and everything about what it had to be and what it had to do. So we completely did a redesign. And then we were assigned the Long Acre Theater. <laughs> and the whole idea of the production were, uh, were, were kind of these black, shiny panels that could iris open and reveal one singer and then open more and reveal another uh, group of singers. It was all based on that. Well, in the Long Acres, I just told you, you had four feet on one side, so there wasn't room for these panels to, to move off. So we ended up completely rethinking it, completely re-engineering it. And uh, it was a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. But somehow we got it on, and it, I guess it wasn't the, the set that was the problem. It was just the show itself, and somehow it just didn't work. But it had great people in it. It was good music. Sure, the set designers always blame everybody else first. When <laughs> Maybe it was the set. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? So... Now, build actually building the set and the transport. Like, how how does how do we take care of getting a build? Where do these things get? Where built does it at? all come from? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there are a, there are quite a few commercial scene shops in the New York area. Most of them are outside of of Manhattan because the real estate is so expensive in Manhattan. So many of them are in Long Island City. Some are up near Cornwall, New York, uh, which is actually a very beautiful place. Um, and so, and what the the closest one, I guess, is in Yonkers, and really one of the largest ones, Hudson Scenic. So, what you do when you design for the commercial theater is that you build a model, you do draftings of everything, and you have what's called a bid session, where you invite all of these shops to come in and sit down at a table, and it's like a big poker game. No one <laughs> wants to reveal how they would do something. But uh, And you go through the plates, the drafting plates, one by one, and you talk about the look of it or the painting of it. And, and a set designer doesn't really do construction drawings. The drawings that we do are really elevations of what we want it to look like. Yeah, which I guess gets into who – are you involved in the decisions that? on how things track? You are. Rooms? You're involved in, in where, where something stores and where it has to get to. Other people – then we'll say, well, you need two tracks or you need one track and you're crazy to do it on a diagonal. It should be straight on and off. Don't even think of a curve. There are other people who are much more skilled at that than the designers. And so what we try to do is just say what we want it to look like. We do have ideas about how we want it to move or the sequence that it moves in. But there are many, many people far more skilled than, than I, for, for sure, who understand all of the engineering of it. And that's when you run into the genius of these people who run these, these shops. So uh, you have a bid session. They look at it, and everybody then submits a price, usually item by item, and you go through it all. And it's fantastic because uh, many times you're over-designed. You've got too much stuff. And, it's a, and the, the money and the budgeting actually helps you to be much more concise and helps you limit it. On South Pacific, we knew specifically that we wanted this floor to move to reveal the orchestra. But to have that, we ended up having to cut some of the other set pieces that ultimately we didn't really need. And so it was actually very helpful that 
it kind of helped us simplify the design. That is a great moment when when the floor slides back and you actually get oh. to see a big orchestra. That well, <laughs> we thought, you know, here you've got 30 people playing, and if you don't show them, people are just going to think they're that they're taped or that they're in a room someplace. And so it was one of the big concerns was that, you know, there are all sorts of issues as to what they wear. They can't be reading their magazines, you know, that all this stuff. And the thrill of it was when they all and, – and what they wear, you know, do we have to rent tuxedos for them? Do they, are they wearing black turtlenecks? The first uh, dress – the first um, preview, they all arrived in tuxes on their own as far as I know. And it was this thrilling moment when the thing went back and people just went bonkers and cl- applauded and carried. And you could see the pride in that orchestra. And especially in the entr'acte at the second act, they almost do it like a big band where the, the brass stands up and yeah. they're moving the trumpets. And they're having a great time. And it adds to the, the joy of the whole piece. And it really becomes about the music. It sort of was a, a visual element as well. Yeah. So what have been a couple of your biggest challenges over your years. Are there any particular stories that stand out in terms of like <laughs> something that seemed impossible but wasn't or something that did prove to be impossible? Or Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> as simple as it seemed at the beginning, one of the most complicated shows that I worked on was Seascape, which is Edward Albee's play. It was produced by Lincoln Center Theater because Light in the Piazza was occupying the, the Vivian Beaumont. We actually did it at the Booth Theater, which was perfectly suited because it's a smaller Legit House, and it is nothing but, it talks about a sand dune, which I think is becoming a light motif of my work. It talked about a sand dune and, you know, a sky, and that was it. And these lizards have to come over the back, and it has to be, to accommodate the lizards coming over the back, the set had to be built up, and it was very irregular, and it turned out to be such an obstacle course for the two actors, George Grissard who's one of the most, the late George Rizard is a fantastic actor, and Francis Sternhagen. I mean, you know, because they're older actors, and it turned out for them to walk around on this thing, which was carved out of styrofoam, covered with a sand-like treatment, uh, and had these rocks strategically placed for them to sit on. They came to the shop before the final carving of the mound was done, and just completely freaked out. And the director says, well, you know, it's steeper than I thought it was going to be. And so I said, well, that's why we're here. We need to carve out. And it was just, I thought we're going to end up taking a chainsaw to this thing and throwing it out. But they actually made choices. And, and uh, I said to the director, I said, they were going to come back and rehearse on it after it was modified. And I said to the director, well, I'll be here. He said, I think it's better if you just stay away. And let us just get back to the acting and see. So they came back and it was all fine. But that was like the biggest nightmare. Because I'm, I'm very actor friendly. I feel like if the actors aren't comfortable or you're putting the actor through some sort of, you know, horrible torture, then you haven't done your job. That's, they're, it's all about them. And they better be comfortable or you're in big Unlike trouble. Unlike the directors who feel like if they haven't yeah. tortured the actors <laughs> enough, then they haven't done <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. But that was, that was about the most difficult thing that I've encountered. And fortunately, it came out well. And it was a wonderful show. 
Well, we're going to continue chatting. Um, this episode's pretty full, so we're going to air this at a later date. But we're, okay. I know you teach as well. Right. Uh, but Yale? At, at the Yale School of Drama. And uh, so hopefully we're going to you know, share some of your advice for aspiring okay. know, designers and maybe a little bit of uh, information on how they can navigate the showcase scene okay. in New York. Is that, you know... That's 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 well. We'll it, air it's, that in a later episode. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about it now. Okay. And well, should we start now? <laughs> well, I just want to finish off by saying yeah. for this to wrap this one up is to you know, I wish you the best of luck. Well, here thank you with, very uh, much. You're Tony Nam, and okay. uh, everybody should get out and catch South Pacific. Definitely, you know, it Definitely. has extended its run, but. Uh, it's open now, right? It's an open-ended run. It's it's very difficult to get seats. But I think a, through November, but it's starting to lighten up a little bit, and it's it's an experience that everyone should have. It's 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 just amazing. And I definitely stress that although it's an open-ended run and it is hard to get seats now, don't don't get lazy about it because this is the type of show. I imagine this has got a pretty big weekly nut. I think it so does. It, it does. You're not I know it this. does. <laughs> so it's probably going to run as long as it's full, not. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Not half full. That's true. All That's right. True. Well, thanks so much for coming down and chatting, and we'll be talking here more later and okay. putting that on a later episode. Thank you, Michael. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. I have a guest today. It's the guy who runs this organization, Michael Gilbo. And we're going to have a, a little discussion on this Sunday's Tonys. Well, so uh, what, what category should we start with in our, our predictions? I think best musical, and I must say, this year the, the pickings are kind of slim. Is there any real doubt as to who's going to win best musical this year? Uh, no, I think In the Heights has it. As much as I really love Passing Strange, I think In the Heights has that mix of being something new and yet is traditional enough. I think this is the first year where the award show will uh, give time to just about Everything that's on Broadway. In fact, they're even bringing in Rent and Lion King. I think, I think the big, biggest overall questions is, will Passing Strange be able to steal a win in any category from In the Heights? And kind of in the revival, who's going to you know, come out on top you know, between South Pacific and Sunday in the Park with George? You know? I don't know about Passing Strange. It has, it has a kiss of death already. It's at the Belasco Theater. Uh, and Mr. Belasco's ghost is... Uh, is sitting up there in his office, looking down on everything. As I was once told, I think only Denzel Washington or Ray Fiennes makes it in that theater. Uh, it's a horrible thing to say. I don't think people go east of Broadway. You know, everything seems to be lopsided to one side of the street. You know, and it sounds silly, but uh, ge geographically speaking, I think it comes out true. You know. Well, I really enjoyed Passing Strange, and I do, I do enjoy In the Heights, too. I, I do think they're worthy candidates for their fields. I think in you know, a stronger year, they might not be as dominating yeah, well, as I, they are. Unfortunately, I haven't seen Passing Strange, so I will not pass judgment mm -hmm. on it. From, from what I hear, people are enjoying it. Um, the biggest category I think Passing Strange might actually get is, um, is Daniel Breaker. We, interviewed on this episode for best you know featured actor in a musical yeah his role is so large that it, it could have been a lead if it you know probably came down to politics and that Stu was definitely a massive lead in the role but from what I've heard of that show is it a musical or kind of a loose review it's definitely uh, a musical yeah but it's you know, it is it, it does break a lot of boundaries and it's a very different thing it's very narrative heavy narr in narration heavy you know which I don't think a lot of people 
like? I think our opinion on what will win Best Musical, uh, considering Xanadu and Crybaby are also up. Uh, I mean, Xanadu got its great reviews. We really didn't think that was going to happen, and I'm happy for the show that it did. Crybaby is really questionable. Uh, I mean, let's face it, everybody's floored that Crybaby got nominated, and certainly the nomination hasn't helped out its box office. The commercial campaign hasn't helped out its box office. I think everybody kind of just smells it's a stinker. In fact, in fact, I was talking to Jim Snyder the other day. He was in the store. I was saying, you guys recording an album? And he says, we're just trying to keep afloat. Uh, so the producers will not put money into an album of a show that is not really... I th very honestly, I, th I think it's in too big a theater. The marquee is a kind of a barn. Yeah, I think it belongs in a small 200-seat house in Ohio at a community theater. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know if it would make it there. <laughs> which is, which is kind of sad because, I, as you know, I, I kind of root for everything. Mm -hmm. I actually saw the show before it opened, and honestly, I had a pretty good time. I mean, it's really stupid fun. I didn't have a good time at all. I thought yeah. there was some great choreography, and I, I'm just hoping that you know Rob Ashford gets a good show sometime to take advantage of his wonderful creativity. In was, fact, I knew the, I knew I knew I knew the night you were seeing it, and I tried to call you before you went in to tell you not to leave before after the intermission, <laughs> uh, because I wanted you to see there's that great second act number, and one of the critics made a, made a good point. Uh, he said that uh, he needs to find a good show to put that choreography into. So yeah, that, that given, I still think, you know, while we're on kind of choreography, that's the one area where Crybaby has a shot, but in, in the year with In the Heights being, you know, so great, you know, I think Andy Lankenbuehler's also got a lock on. Yeah. He took, the, he took the drama disc for it last year, and I think Andy yeah. Lankenbuehler's got... Since we're on the subject of best show, uh, we should mention best score, uh, and I think In the Heights has that also. In, uh, there's a lot of things In the Heights just as a lock on. Passing Strange is a great score, but it's just uh, it's just unconventional enough. Whereas In the Heights is conventional yet fresh. That you know this season, I I don't think there's a real question mark on on that. <coughs> and yet I can't believe that neither of these shows have really found. An audience. I mean, it's in the Heights is actually doing pretty. It's doing much better than I expected. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, on on Broadway, I think all the Tony wins are going to do definitely do nothing but help that out in getting a chance to perform on national television if they pick yeah. the right song. And that's why I think it's a good thing to let every show perform. And I I was always I was always for that uh, because I think. I think certain performances on TV, on, na on national television, might actually make people interested in something. Somebody from Madison, Wisconsin will be looking at it and say, gee, next time I go to New York, I might want to see that, because uh, it, looks, it looks good. In 1993, Blood Brothers was a bombed show, but it found somewhat of an audience because of its appearance on the Tony Awards. So uh, I think the biggest question mark, I think the real only real drama is what's going to win revival, you know, Sunday in the Park with George or South Pacific. Well, Gypsy. I don't, I don't think Gypsy's going to take it in there. I, think I don't Patty know. Lepone's probably, a re you know, I haven't seen it, but, uh, but. You know, you know, as much as I love, as much as I love Patty, uh, I must say that 
and listening to people and everything, and I haven't seen South Pacific, I think Kelly O'Hara is going to have a great shot. And I like the girl that's in Sunday in the Park, Jenna Russell. I think she's fantastic, but she'll probably be forgotten about. In a and Best Actress, my personal thing, I, pretty, I think Carrie Butler should win. I don't think she has a shot in hell with all the buzz I hear, but yeah. <laughs> she should. I, I think comedy's underrated, and what she does, I mean, Carrie Butler, along with Douglas Carter Bean, I think are really the two biggest creative elements that made that show so enjoyable and made it work so well. But I think Carrie Butler is a comedic genius, and I think she's been over, at least she finally did get a nomination. Um, I personally am rooting for her to win. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but then again, I look at Miss Lapone, and I found her performance astounding in a show that everybody knows by heart. I mean, you can do Gypsy in your sleep, you know. In fact, I had friends coming in from England, and and I said you should make it a point to see Gypsy. And it was, oh, we've been there and done that. And uh, it, well, they said the same thing about South Pacific, but in actuality. I don't think anybody realizes that this is the first Broadway revival of South Pacific ever, you know, and uh, although it's not one of my favorite Rogers and Heimerstein, I find it much too political and too long, you know, but the music is great. And from what I understand, there's a scene in this production where they roll back the stage and you're looking at a 30-piece orchestra, which, mm -hmm. again, I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for bringing yeah. that back. I think the wind's going to blow to South Pacific winning. It, to me, the, I, I haven't had a chance to get Sunday in the Park with George yet. It's really not one of my favorite Sondheim shows as much as I do like Sondheim. I think there's some great songs in it, but I've, I've never been that th thrilled with it as a whole show. My general word I hear on that is people love it or hate it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard very little hate. <laughs> I've heard a few people who hate it, um, <laughs> but South Pacific, though, I don't, I don't know if it has received the rapturous love that I've heard from some of the people on, you know, something in the Park with George. But I think everybody admires the production, yeah. And I think that consistency when it comes to Tony voters is what's going to. And I oh. gotta say, I think the album, the CD of this South Pacific, is one of the best sounding show albums ever. It is just done so well. The orchestra sounds so good. The singers sound so good. It's just a, a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, I've been so busy this year that you know I haven't had a chance to catch a lot of the stuff. So you know, some of it is what I've seen. Some of it's going on kind of buzz. Do you think there's anybody in the best leading actor in a musical that can uh, take down Lin Manuel Miranda, or do you think he's got it? Uh, I think he's got it. I, I, mean, think, I don't think I, I think Paul Zott did a great job in South Pacific, but I don't think it's enough to. I mean, Lin Manuel. If there's one category, even in a weak year, I think Lin Manuel Miranda would have the acting category. What I was um, so what I was so amazed with after who is it? His cousin or his aunt or just a friend? The old lady. After she dies, he does a song as he does everything in the show as a rap, <laughs> and. He does a ballad, a ballad, a sad ballad as a rap. And it's so amazing to listen to him do this. Has anybody ever in a single year won uh, best you know, composer, you know, you know, best music and lyrics and uh, uh, acting? I don't know. I don't I mean, think so. No. I don't think so. Well, Ragney and Rado might. I'm not sure mm -hmm. whether they were nominated for Hair. And they wrote, they wrote the lyrics for the show. 
I don't remember what happened in 1968, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a long time ago. I mean, I was an old man already then, but uh, I don't remember exactly what happened with the Tony Awards. I, uh, think, I think Stu gives an amazing performance in Passing Strange. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling, the fact that he can keep it up eight, nights, <laughs> eight performances a week. But... It's like I said, it's largely narration, and I wouldn't call it a real heavy acting role, and that's where I think Lynn Manuel's got. See, I think it's really unfortunate, and I must see Passing Strange before it, it closes. You must. It's, and, a, it's a, and, definitely a show worth seeing. It's like, and 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 to me, it's like kind of a forgotten item. I usually go on a popularity of a show by how many people ask for the cast recording, you know. And no one's asked for a Passing Strange cast recording. Unbelievably. I'm just blowing out the South Pacific and the In the Heights. People are constantly buying that. And, and no one has asked for a recording of, of Passing Strange, which is sad. You know, because me being on the positive side, in quotes, <laughs> uh, root for just about everything. And hopefully a spot on the Tony Awards will, will get them some interest. Yeah, my my guess is that a lot of the the most hotly contested awards, you know, that are most up for grabs are probably in the in the play categories, which I, you know I haven't seen as many, and I'm, I don't know as well. I mean, I think August Osage County's got we'll probably take everything. Got the best, you know, definitely. But in there, there's at least one hotly contested contest with two of their actresses being up against each other for lead actress. If anything plays like a musical, it's probably that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, because it's of its bigness, and uh, in fact, uh, I haven't seen it, and it would be interesting to see how it transferred from the Imperial to the uh, to the smaller Music Box Theater, uh, with the levels of the house and everything like that. That's kind of a small, compact theater. Actually, that should be the Theater Crybaby room should be playing at. <laughs> Again, I say the community theater in Omaha, but <laughs> And so, so yeah, to me the biggest drama is watching and seeing exactly how many of the awards that in the heights sweeps, you know. It's yeah. a great show, it deserves some wins, I think in a stronger year it wouldn't but it looks like it has the capability in this year to look like a powerhouse monster. None, none of the girls in the show were nominated, were they? No, there, yeah, there was a best fe- uh, featured actress. The uh, f- yeah, I know who you're talking. Olga Merides. She might actually get it. Yeah, she's fantastic. She, she is. I, I, I remember her from last year. She's fantastic. I do think that uh, Loretta Abel's Sayre. Don't know if I'm yeah. it right. Who played Bloody Mary in yeah. South Pacific gave a really great performance. Have you seen South Pacific? Yes, I did. Is it great? Personally, I thought I, I really enjoyed watching it. It was a good show. I th- I felt they did it a touch too reverently. To me, it seemed like oh, we're doing a Pulitzer Prize winning thing, and let's give it all the gravity and weight it it deserves. Much like they did with Oklahoma a few years back. I, uh, I think they could have handled it with a touch more fun. But I did think it was a good show. And, of course, my friend Danny Burstein must be great. You know, yeah. I always enjoy him. You know, he's nominated for a Tony, yes, right? Yes, he is. And yeah. yeah I, I, I would guess that it's between him and Daniel Breaker. But, like, Daniel Breaker's just got such a juicy role in Passing Strange that, to me, that's the one thing that Passing Strange, I think, is should win. It's definitely a strong category, but if you'd seen Passing Strange, you know what I'm talking yeah. about by Daniel Breaker. Like I said, in any in any other I year, actually shouldn't even 
even be doing this discussion <laughs> since I haven't seen Passing Strange yet. I haven't seen South Pacific. But I've had, as most of you probably know, uh, well, I, I a bad that, year. Well, yeah, <laughs> bad year. But I think that's something indicative about this year at the box office. The fact, I mean, I've been busy, but I, I can make time to see. I think, you know, the, we two of us are very into musicals and stuff, and we haven't felt motivated to run out and see a lot of the stuff. I said last year that Xanadu would be the show to beat this year, <laughs> and I came pretty close, actually. <laughs> I said it in a joking manner last year, but I didn't realize the kind of reviews that show would get. There's one thing. There's one thing I think In the Heights might lose, too. I think Douglas Carter Bean just might take best book for a musical for Xanadu. For Xanadu. Well, thanks for having me on, and we won't have to wait too long to find out what if we were on target with any of these. And, uh, and I must say, uh, if you have any opinions, you can email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. And once again, it's Marty Cooper on the positive side. Top of the trades. A Bronx Tale, Chaz Palmentary's one-man show that ended its extended engagement on Broadway in February, will launch its national tour in September. The tour will kick off September 2nd in Austin, Texas at the Long Center for the Performing Arts, followed by engagements in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Directed by Jerry Zachs, the semi-autobiographical show will continue touring through 2009. As previously announced, Bronx Tale will play the Los Angeles Wadsworth Theater September 9th through 21st and San Francisco's Golden Gate Theater September 23rd through October 19th. According to Broadway Across America, Com. The national tour of Bronx Tale is also scheduled stops at Washington, D.C.'s Warner Theater, Milwaukee's Ulan Hall, Boston's Colonial Theater, Baltimore's Hippodrome Theater, and the Frank Merritt PAC and Minneapolis State Theater. Additional venues are expected. Tony Award winners Joan Allen and Jeremy Irons will return to Broadway to star together in the world premiere of Impressionism, a new American play by Michael Jacobs. The production, which will be directed by Tony Award winner Jack O'Brien, will come to Broadway in spring 2009. Design team and additional casting will be announced at a later date. The production will mark Ms. Allen's first return to Broadway since The Heidi Chronicles in 1989 and Mr. Irons' first time on Broadway since The Real Thing in 1984. Impressionism is the story of a world-traveling photojournalist and a New York gallery owner who discover each other and also that there might be an art to repairing broken lives. Curtain call. Whew! Well, that rounds out a jam-packed episode. And hey, was I right? Is this the best episode ever? I think so. I think it was just fantastic. We're going to be coming back to you in uh, two weeks, every second and fourth Thursday of the month. And I know we're going to have uh, some great stuff for you. We should have the upcoming cast of Vanities on. And in addition, we're bringing back long-awaited Broadway Abridged Live here on Next Big Hit. We're gonna, we are gonna got two episodes in the can. We're going to do... Uh, Lay Miz abridged for you next episode, so be sure to tune in for that one. I'm sure Marty Cooper's excited, <laughs> I think. Anyway, keep those reviews coming, and iTunes, really appreciate all you people who got out and reviewed and bumped us back into the iTunes 100 in the arts as a result. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live, Center. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. 
it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.